three girls running up and hugging their mother who they haven't seen in three years is just one of the most impactful videos in the world, I think, to realize that she is a soldier in the Ukrainian uh, armed forces and she um, couldn't have gone to get her kids herself because she is a soldier. That that was such a special video. Amazing. The other thing that happened that day is the other organization that brings kids back regularly, Save Ukraine, brought back four kids also. There were 12 kids returned on one day. That is something that's important to keep in mind, too, is we supported Orphan Seeding Foundation. It is an extremely important charity, but we can't forget that there were 12 kids total brought back that day. There have been amazing things that happened this week, amazing things that happened this week. It's also been a week when I have been extremely angry at times. I have been angry and frustrated more than I have in a long time. I was talking to somebody. One of the things we have to remember is our anger is often a very righteous anger, a very justified anger. And it's anger because we care. It's an anger because we love. That anger and the way we respond to it shows who we are. And it's not always a bad thing to have some anger in there. To get us started, let me think about where we left off. I believe we left off on page five on the key findings. And I think we, I think that we had gotten through the first of the key findings. Now, before we get just, that's just uh, where we were. I think if Nancy or Gina remember it differently, please tell me. Also, I wanted to give Gina the opportunity to provide us with, of course, the definitions, because I'm betting she has a couple that she would like to share. And also, perhaps our, our little disclaimer and warning that if you need support, find support and get support, because your health, your mental health, you being okay, is extremely important in this process. So... I was wondering before we dive into the report, this isn't so much a definition as an observation of some resources, but some processes that we saw taking place here in the United States this week that gives us some insight into genocide and what is happening in Ukraine now. How about I give the resources and then I also had some information about some researchers that I heard speak this week about the Holodomor and they had some interesting insights about the survivor-centered approach. Again, it all ties in with this. Are you willing to let me do the resources first and then maybe take a, a little quick side trip to these two short topics first and then dive back into the report? I don't think that really needs an answer because ah. I know that it's... <laughs> I was going to say no just to be like... obstinate, but I can't mean ah. it. <laughs> I don't even know why you bothered to ask. Of course, that's fine. Because of that's course. 12 years of Catholic school right there. So. It's a perfect approach, Gina. Thank you. <laughs> no, it, as long it, as you don't turn Canadian on me. I don't know. I think I'm getting pretty close. I almost applied to graduate school, my first grad school at St. John's, Memorial University of Newfoundland. I had Canadian friends in my undergraduate years who said, you couldn't hack one winter up there. Don't even spend the application phase. I didn't. And I regret that because it's such a beautiful town. Just really quick, Gina, I'm, I'm, if 
finding myself chuckling about that because earlier today, Tracy and Marcus and a few others were talking about accents and we were talking about the differences in regions within England. But you go further north with the accent changing. Marcus pointed out that the same thing happens with Canada, where it gets harder and more challenging is as same thing as you go further north. And by the time you get to Newfoundland, it's about as understandable for Canadians and some of the far, far north areas are for England, apparently. (laughs) You would have come back with a completely different way of speaking had you gone to university there. (laughs) I'm sure. Languages are fast. To put that into context here for what we're talking about tonight, isn't that the beauty of these human cultures, that we are different, that we have so many different languages, artistic expressions, styles of dressing and architecture. These are the very things people who wage genocide want to take from us. They want to take away our diversity. They want to take away the fact that our languages can shift even within our own country. Dialects can emerge. New languages can emerge. Again, it's born of an incredible evil, fear, poverty, and The very people that seek to conquer the world make the world so much smaller and poorer. We can just see that even as Russia has waged this genocide, Ukrainian culture has continued to flourish where you're seeing art on ruined buildings and just incredible creativity. It's not to romanticize the pain, the the profound, largely indescribable pain the Ukrainian people are suffering right now. It is to show that the human spirit is meant for this. It's meant for flourishing, for creativity, for expression. There are so many reasons why we need to stop genocide. It's not just the genocide that takes place in the physical, which of course is, is, is crucial to stop, but it's the genocide that takes place against the mind, against the heart. What Russians are doing to these stolen Ukrainian children right now, in whose hearts the language, the culture, the memories, the heritage will be carried on and not just carried on, but developed and improved. Who knows what works of art, what scientific breakthroughs, what contributions to humanity are being hindered, are being detained, are being silenced by stolen children who are being erased of their identities, hidden throughout Russia, told that their homeland was not for them, that they were abandoned, their culture was somehow wrong. We find so many reasons to fight for Ukraine and to fight for the return of these children as we're talking about tonight. But before we do any of that, let's get some resources because I confess, and I've said this before, that of all the things in discussing the genocide, Russia's genocide in Ukraine, I think I find, even though I'm a survivor of sexual assault, I think I find the children, and even though I don't have any children, I think I find this topic the hardest to really, to read the details and to think that these children are being, that their childhoods are being stolen from them, from their families, to President Zelensky's efforts to speed up this process of return. I, I can only lend my full heart and support to that because it's crucial. You don't get that time back. Children develop so very rapidly. They all grow up much too quickly for any parent. I guess some parents would say not quickly enough, but we know in our hearts, every single moment you have with your child is precious. Even if it's a challenging one, to have that stolen, the the heartbreak, it just can't even be expressed. As I said, that's why I find this particularly difficult. If you feel overwhelmed, if this triggers memories in you of your own trauma, we need you safe and strong for yourself because you have a right to that, also to do this work of supporting Ukraine. If it's too much, take a break. If you are in distress, 
Of course, if you are in immediate medical, mental, or emotional distress, we can call 911 or the emergency number in your country of residence. If you are in the United States and if anything that you hear tonight or at any point, if you ever feel suicidal, we have the National Suicide Hotline, which you can call or chat at 988. If any memories of sexual assault or if you are in danger of sexual assault or in a situation where you're routinely experiencing sexual assault, again, there is the National Sexual Assault Hotline in the United States. You can call or chat. That is 1-800-656-4673. In Canada, we have mental health uh, resources available at mentalhealthfoundation.ca. Specific to Ukraine, if you are needing to talk about your experiences as someone who may be displaced from Ukraine or have loved ones in Ukraine or just overwhelmed with the, the horror and the human suffering that's being inflicted on Ukraine in English, you can text the word HOPE, the number four, and Ukraine, HOPE for Ukraine, to 393939. In Ukrainian, you can text Ukraina to 1-855-450-2266. To that same number, you can text the Russian spelling of Ukraine. Again, that's 1-855-450-2266. You can also, to that same number, text in French, Espoir, E-R, the number four, Ukraine. Again, that's 1-855-450-2266. You can also find some other resources at Canada.ca on their public health services, mental health services webpage. If you're in immediate danger, you need medical support, again, call 911. And you can also, if you're in Canada, if you or a loved one is thinking about suicide, you can call Talk Suicide Canada at 1-833-456-4566. That's 24-7. I do believe that number has shifted to a three-digit number. I think that was supposed to happen at the end of November, but you can go on to the website to Talk DA. For residents of Quebec, you can call 1-866-277-3553 or again, visit the website. With that said, I can go into the two little sidebars that I was going to briefly mention, or I can take a break and let someone else talk for a moment. I'd say go for it, Tina. Go on. All right, here we go. I had the opportunity this past Sunday to attend the Holodomor commemoration at the Ukrainian Catholic Cathedral in Philadelphia. And at the same time, there was also an academic conference in town. As it turned out, one of the professors there came to speak briefly at this event. He, he said something very interesting. First, I met a 97-year-old Holocaust survivor named Maria. I got to speak with her through an interpreter, so that was a great honor. She gave a little bit of her testimony at this event, and she had actually, at one point, experienced what she was calling really a little miracle in her village as she was suffering. She had been walking by a marsh and managed to see, I guess she was as I understood it, the way she was speaking through the interpreter, her family was without food. She saw this splashing and couldn't quite figure out what it was. Here it was a fish that was pretty much kind, almost flipping itself out of the water. She took that as a sign from God, and they somehow managed to get this fish wriggling alive as it was. They didn't have any instruments, but they managed to get it and bring it back. That was a meal for them. So I thought that was a certainly a ray of hope there in the midst of that horrific experience. But one of the professors who spoke at this event, we've talked about the survivor-centered approach to addressing the needs of survivors, addressing the, the need for justice and healing from genocide. 
this professor who was actually at the Holodomor Research Education Center, that website is Holodomor, H-O-L-O-D-O-M-O-R dot C-A. He is the chair of the executive committee there. His name is Frank Sisson, S-Y-N. He said what was critical to getting the Holodomor recognized in over the past, over the 20th century after it happened and, and even now into the future was really listening to the testimony of the survivors. A call was put out. There was a researcher, James Mace, M-A-C-E, was an American a political scientist and researcher. He actually ended up moving to Ukraine. He was born in Oklahoma. And I think he was at Harvard. He was one of the preeminent researchers because he put a call out and said, if you went through this experience, talk to me, let me get your testimony. Because a lot of people had been so traumatized, they didn't want to speak about it. Of course, Ukraine was still under Soviet rule. So talking about this, even trying to document it, because the Soviet Union and now Russia has worked very hard to completely ignore the atrocities in which they have participated and to rewrite history. Frank Sisson was saying in his brief presentation that even his center, even the Holodomor Research Education Center, was at one point approached when the Soviet Union was still in place and saying, you know what, if you shut this down, maybe we can work out something where you get some access to our archives. They basically just said, no, and walked away. <laughs> and he said, I'm very glad that we said no. I thought that was just incredibly important that survivors were the ones who told that history. And it has to be because any persecuted group any group that has against which genocide has been waged, you're trying to destroy all the evidence, right? You're trying to destroy the people and the greatest evidence is in the very people that you are trying to destroy. That's why it's important to speak about these things. It's important to hear testimonies. It's important what we're doing on Maria Report here because we're entering this into the historical record. Every time that we're here live, it's recorded, it's put on Spotify, it's put on YouTube. It's in the digital record. It's out there. It's part of the human library of life. We've got this on here. And who knows if at one point, one of the guests who's been on here or the information that we're sharing here, people will say, oh, I didn't know about that. Oh, okay, now I'm starting to piece things together. This is educational. We're creating a digital library here to speak every time that we do this. I thought that was very important. And the other thing, I want to preface this by saying we need to stay focused on Ukraine, of course, in this space. I'm only bringing this up because of the, the process. And as we're looking at genocide, of course, genocide is a process. We don't just wake up one morning and it's suddenly genocide. It can happen rapidly. If we go back to Gregory Stanton's 10 stages of genocide, which you can Google or you can go on to genocidewatch.net, Genocide is a process and it's not an inevitable one. He lists 10 stages. I'll just run through them really quickly because the, the descriptions are very self-evident. That first one is classification. While classification is something that's native to humans, part of how our brains work, that's something we have to pay attention to because how we classify can lead to this what at least can become discrimination and in the worst cases, genocides. You start by that classifying. Then the second stage, symbolizations. We're giving names to that. We call all people by the one name, not allowing that people are individuals. One person is not necessarily by any means representative of an entire group of people. The third, discrimination. 
something, unfortunately, we are well familiar with in the United States and in many parts of the world. Unfortunately, in the United States still, for all of our advances, have a long ways to go. Dehumanization. I think we've certainly talked about this before because one of the things with genocide is that you're looking at the absolute almost, they really are unspeakable. They defy words. People just don't have the language or the imagination to think human beings could do these things to one another. At some level in most of the people who are doing this is not in any way, shape or form to exonerate them. That natural respect for other human beings we should have has to somehow get switched off enough, they're able to proceed with these horrific acts. They don't see them as We hear that in the language, right? We hear people say, oh, they are pigs. I remember watching one video of, of uh, a middle-aged Russian woman calling this Ukrainian kid. She was describing this Ukrainian kid that she had seen as a little, I think she used the word pig, a little swine or something like that. Said, How could you ever call a child that? No matter what the nationality, a child. How could you call a child that? She didn't see that child as human. She had no problem calling that child that name. After dehumanization, stage five, organization. Stage six, polarization. To back it up to that stage five, genocide is always organized. It's usually by the state or militias, but it, th there's an organization level. We're going to see that tonight as we go back into this report. We see all of the different entities and individuals who are colluding and cooperating in a very systematic way to remove, to steal these Ukrainian children, not just physically steal them, separate them from their parents, but then to steal their identities, to reprogram them and re-educate them. So this is organized. And then there's polarization and there's preparation. It's planned. Again, tonight's report, we can see the timeline we can see that people were undertaking these activities well before the full-scale invasion, starting it in 2014 with the first stage of the invasion. We saw this a few weeks ago when we were looking at the grain. In the report that we looked at, they actually bought tankers to, that specifically fit the port size to steal the grain. That's planning. That's preparation. That's stage seven. Persecution, eight. We're there, okay? We're there in Ukraine. In fact, one of the stories I posted this week, it's in my timeline. This is a vetted document in the occupied area of Zaporizhia. Zaporizhia itself, the city, is still under Ukrainian control, but the oblast, the occupied oblast, the Russian official who was installed there, who, his name is Belitsky, Yevgeny Belitsky, back in December of last year, had actually issued a decree banning the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church in that area, confiscating its buildings, outlawing the Knights of Columbus, which if anyone's Catholic out there, you may have heard of it, it's like the, the largest Catholic fraternal organization that does incredible humanitarian good in, in so many countries. The Polish chapter of the Knights of Columbus has been extraordinary in its support of Ukraine. It's just incredible. Apparently, they banned the Knights of Columbus. They also banned Caritas, which is the Universal Catholic Church's official humanitarian arm. It has different names in different countries. Caritas, of course, means love. But this Russian official, Belitsky, banned the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church, the Knights of Columbus, and Caritas in occupied Zaporizhia. It is an authentic document that 
Felix Corley of Forum 18. If you haven't checked out that website, Forum 18, F-O-U-R-M 18, phenomenal human rights researcher, fluent in Russian and in Ukrainian as well, I believe. He's been doing this work for years of documenting human rights abuses, particularly in Ukraine. Uh, he's also the one who has been trying to research the two redemptorist Catholic priests in Ukraine who were kidnapped and tortured from the Zaporizhia Oblast. There's still no information about them, but I spoke with him. He vetted the document. The Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church released a copy of it. They said, we found this, and apparently it's legitimate. We're putting this out there to let you know this is what they're doing to us in Zaporizhia. Again, stage eight, persecution. There we are with that. And extermination. And we're already seeing that with what Russia is doing in Ukraine, the, the relentless attacks on civilians, certainly the filtration camps, the treatment of POWs. We saw flat out the video of the soldiers surrendering, just shot dead. I don't know what other word to use for it except extermination. And of course, stage 10, denial. And denial, as Stanton writes in his 10 stages of genocide, he says, quote, it's the final stage that lasts throughout and always follows genocide. It is among the surest indicators of further genocidal massacres. The perpetrators of genocide dig up the mass graves, they burn the bodies, they try to cover up the evidence and intimidate the witnesses. What do you think is happening with the children who have been stolen by Russia? We're going to obliterate their identities which is the goal of genocide, is to obliterate a people. But it's also a form of denial because you're denying the identity of these children. I'm sorry, I'm going on a bit long here. I just wanted to transition from these 10 stages to the next point that I was going to make because I think it's important here in the U.S., both for ourselves, but also for how we are approaching our support for Ukraine. It's important for us to be aware because we've got a homegrown example here. Again, the goal here is to remain focused on Ukraine. I'm not bringing this up for really any other reason. It's a matter of process. But anyone that's weak who happened to see the testimony of four college presidents, including the one from my alma mater, University of Pennsylvania, before the, uh, it was a House committee, I think. I didn't get a chance to watch this live. My colleague did, but then I went back and, and watched it. It's available on C-SPAN. This has to do with anti-Semitism on college campuses. If you watch... The video, what's really interesting about it is that none of those professors brought up the word genocide. It had to be brought up to them. It was. If you look, there's a, an excerpt that's widely circulated. It's about three minutes of uh, Representative Elise Stefanik, flat out asking. She was referencing these anti-Semitic chants that were taking place on all of these college campuses. She said, does this call, does your university permit this call genocide with these chats on your campus. She framed it as a yes or no question. And every single one of those professors, or rather the college presidents, kept trying to contextualize it. It depends. It depends. You heard a lot of the same language among the four of them. I'm not in any way, shape, or form trying to be disrespectful or do a character assassination here. This testimony was widely, on a bipartisan basis, on an international basis, condemned. It got a lot of backlash. The statement from Yad Vashem in Israel, the Holocaust Memorial, the Shoah Memorial there, it was just devastating. What I found so incredibly troubling, especially from the Penn president, who kept referencing the Constitution, was that 
there was no mention of incitement to genocide. We know from these sessions and from reading the Genocide Convention, we cite it at pretty much every session here. We're usually citing portions of that document. He said incitement to genocide is genocide. Signatories to that genocide convention, which includes the United States, must prevent and punish. You can't allow people to incite genocide in the first place. Why would we not at least mention this word and say, is this what we have here? Are we looking at actual incitement? In the course of looking into this a little further, because I was really struggling to understand why for highly educated, obviously capable in many ways, professionals, academics, we're not even thinking in this direction. Then when you find out that most of us, I'm not sure we were all aware of, but we have a, a, a U.S. act. <laughs> it's a piece of legislation that was signed into law in 2018. The It's an act on preventing genocide and atrocities. The idea of the act was to strengthen the U.S.'s ability to respond to atrocities. It created a White House-led interagency atrocity prevention task force, a funding mechanism so that the U.S. could be better prepared to do these things. Yet, right on the Hill, we weren't even thinking the word genocide, and we've got this law on the books. I wanted to invite people to think about that tonight. Again, my goal here is that... Israel deserves a separate conversation. And I know it sometimes it bleeds through a little bit here in our discussions. I really do want us to keep focused on Ukraine and the task at hand. And I did want to invite people to think about that, pass that along. And you can check out my timeline for the text of that act. I see Alan has his hand up. So I'm going to just hold on for a second here and take a pause and lead the way, uh, Prince and, and Nancy. Go ahead, Alan. Uh, thank you, Prince. Gina, I wonder if here in the United States, we have failed in teaching about genocide, teaching about the Holocaust. I remember when I was very young, 10 years old. So this is 1963. My mother and my father had both fought in World War II. They both experienced the Holocaust in Europe. My father's lifelong friend had fought in the Pacific. There were atrocities practiced in the Pacific by the Japanese. In bringing up my own daughter, I remember how my wife and I discussed when would be the appropriate time to educate her about the Holocaust. We visited the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C. when she was 12. This is an extraordinary museum. Any American suggest you visit the Holocaust Museum in, in Washington, D.C. Have we failed here in the United States educating our children about the Holocaust, about, anti about xenophobia? If we have failed, how can we correct this failure? Because I happen to think we have failed. Now is the time to correct it. I would have to say, Alan, that, and again, we're looking at how can we possibly expect to combat and prevent genocide in other places if we haven't followed through on never again, right? The U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum is a, even if you can't get to the museum because it's too far away, the website alone is a tremendous 
resource with so much information, educational resources. Again, if you are not physically able to get to the museum itself, it, it's just worth visiting the website because it's such a source of, of information, reflection, research, and educational programs that are for various ages. I, I think for me personally, there are many excellent efforts in this regard for Holocaust education in schools, but I think my sense, and I'm, I'm pleased if someone else wants to weigh in on this and please do, but I think that it's rather unevenly applied. And me personally, as for example, a, a Catholic, as I am a Catholic journalist, when I see someone like Nick Fuentes, who is actively denying the Holocaust, believe me, you're never going to argue in favor of anti-Semitism or genocide if you are a faithful Catholic or Christian. You're just not going to find it in our texts. It's not there, certainly for Catholics, since the Second Vatican Council, because believe you me, that got called to account and it is still getting called to account. We have had some phenomenal work over 50 years of really getting at the table with each other. Some incredible people have really held the church to account, have really challenged the anti-Semitism that unfortunately was historical. I think in terms of genocide prevention, that's a sign of hope, is that people can change, that genocide is not inevitable. And that religion doesn't have to be poisoned in favor of it, as we've seen, unfortunately, with Russia trying to impose its, what unfortunately is a co-opted religion, the Russian Orthodox Church, that's in service of the state, to promote this ethno-nationalism that admits of no other nationality that has this, these imperialist designs in an age when we thought we'd all left this behind. Again, Alan, I do think the fact that we didn't have that consciousness in those hearings to me says something is very wrong. On the flip side, the hope is the fact that students were there testifying and saying, no, this is the problem and you aren't doing enough about it. In fact, you're not doing really anything about it. Shows me that there's hope, that innately, people know this is wrong. Again, I, I don't want to go too far afield with Ukraine from Ukraine because that is the topic at hand. This is the report that we're looking at tonight. I'm inviting people to think about that and to see, because in the end, if we're going to help Ukraine, it depends on, as Samantha Power makes clear in her book, A Problem from Hell, America in the Age of Genocide. We've mentioned that several times in here. She talks about the domestic political will is so critical. In fact, it's almost like the determining factor as to do we stop this genocide over there? If we're not going to recognize the signs of it in front of our own eyes, then how can we combat it elsewhere? So that's why I'm asking us to pay attention to what's going on around us right now. As a separate example, tonight, one of the st last stories that I wrote for, my, for the day was in San Diego, we had a federal judge who ruled for an eight-year ban on migrant family separations at the U.S. border. Now, again, I don't want to introduce a topic that deserves its own forum. It's not why we're here tonight, but it's a parallel. Those were separations that produced the same kind of trauma. You have undocumented people coming in here, but you're ripping them apart housing the children at different places throughout the country. When the order was struck down, initially, there was a scramble to get these kids. When the policy was stopped, there was a scramble to get these kids reunited back with their families because they didn't even have the good records together. The databases didn't link up. They had kids all over the country. They were trying to get back. They had 30 days to get these kids back with their parents. It was disastrous. 
again, the point is, is that not a sign that we need to be attentive to in our own country so that we can better prevent the atrocities in other countries? I submit that if we had been paying attention in 2014 as a nation, if other nations had been paying attention then, we would not be talking about more than 19,000 confirmed stolen children from Ukraine and possibly, God forbid, I pray it's not true, but possibly as high as where Russia admits it's stolen, which is something north of 700,000. We do not ever need to let it get to this point. There's no reason for that as human beings, as a nation. This ever should have gotten this far. None whatsoever. None. And unless we collectively exercise enough will to stand up for human rights. That's all this is human rights. No matter what your beliefs are, no matter what your political party is, no matter what your language is, no matter what your sexual preferences, your orientation, your status, none of it matters. These are human beings. We must fight for their rights because if we don't, I tell you, this isn't just for me. All the experts, all the data shows Democracy is on the wane in this world. It's endangered. And authoritarianism is on the rise. Human rights abuses are on the rise. They are going unpunished and unaddressed simply because at the end of the day, people don't have the will to fight it. Where they try to exercise as much of their will, but there aren't enough other people who are willing to join in with them. That's why we're here, to change that in our own way. Thank God Maria Report exists. Thank God that we do this every Friday night as painful as it can be. Lest you have any doubts that what you're doing here tonight, even if you do no more than listen, if you never raise your hand, if you never speak, even if you're never even able to give one dime, your attention, your thoughtful listening, and your willingness to share, to think, reflect, and to learn is worth more than any money that you could give because it will change lives. It will save lives. Alan, go ahead. Thank God, Gina, you're here. Thank God, Vina, Prince, and Nancy, you're here. The abduction of Ukrainian children. It is 780,000 or more children. Russia itself, spokespeople in Russia itself has said, have said, this is the number of Ukrainian children that have been abducted. Sorry, Alan, I'm, I apologize. A lot of those children are children that went with their families. It's been clarified with us by Miriam, and that's information that has come from the Ombudsman of Ukraine's office, which is why the Ukraine can't include them. If when entire families were deported, they include the kids that were in those families. They're not necessarily separated uh, from their families and deported in the way that we're thinking of necessarily. When families decided to leave and go to Mariupol, that's where their inflated number of 700 and some odd thousand is. I think the numbers were, I apologize for interrupting you. I hate doing it. We have to be really careful. I do believe it is in the hundreds of thousands. I don't believe it's 19,000, but I think the 700,000 is not totally what Russia has abducted. Yes, the families were put in positions where they had to leave, but they aren't considered abducted in the way that we would think of as abducted, stolen children. They left with their families. I'm sorry, I just needed to clarify that. I apologize. No, no 
need for apologies. I thank you for your clarification. Whether it's 100,000, 200,000 children, even if it approaches the number I used for whatever reason, and these might be children in occupied Ukraine, maybe they are still with their families, and maybe they've been abducted into Russia with members of their own family. This is evidence of genocide. Uh, Russia has a policy here, uh, a policy uh, of abducting a future generation of Ukraine, cutting them off from their culture and their history, uh, denying them their own language, and uh, bringing them to Russia for what reason? In order to correct, if I'm a Russian authoritarian, in order to correct a demographic problem that Russia itself has created by pursuing this genocidal war against Ukraine, killing hundreds of thousands of its own people, its own citizens. I don't care if it's 10,000 or 100,000 or 300,000 Ukrainian children and Ukrainian citizens abducted into Russia. This is evidence of genocide. It's evidence of genocide that the ICC itself has accepted in order to issue arrest warrants for Vladimir Putin and Maria Blavova, but whatever the hell her name is. The fact of the matter is, we are witnessing a genocide committed against Ukraine I don't understand why it is so difficult to convince the world that this is what is happening. Alan, I think the harder aspect of it as well is that particularly when it comes to the illegal deportation of children, is that when you look at the reports and you hear the testimony of the subject matter experts, we have to remember this isn't a one-time event. It continues to happen day in, day out, as long as this war and as long as Russia's illegal occupation continues. I need to say a couple things really quick here. Then we'll go to Gina and the, then debater. Actually, I'm really glad we shot into talking about this the way we are because we often go through these reports. We talk about a lot of very important things, but all of this is also part of understanding genocide. It's extremely important for us to be able to have these kinds of conversations. That is a very good thing. Now, Gina, you keep on saying you want to bring it back to Ukraine. You want to bring it back to Ukraine, but you can see the links to Ukraine in just about everything you're saying. You can see the links, you can see the comparisons, you can see the parallels, you can see freaking Putin's playbook being put into place in the United States at the southern border with the separation of the families. And that that ruling today is important because it what if we had a ruling like that for Russia to bring back the kids? Not that Russia would follow through. However, you get my point. That is, those things all relate back to Ukraine. We can all see this as to 
what is happening with the children from Ukraine. We can see these things and these actions in the genocide that is taking place in Ukraine. I had one more point, but I will wait on that one. Gina, go ahead. Two quick points. One is about the the number of Ukrainians in Russia, according to the UN's data. Before I say that, when you said playbook, I think I mentioned this last week, I recently covered a panel discussion sponsored by Notre Dame and SIS in Washington. I think that Center for Strategic and International Studies is think tank. This was actually on Nicaragua, which if, if you haven't been following it, Nicaragua under the Ortega administration, or I should do a better pronunciation of Spanish for that from my Spanish friends, Ortega Murillo administration has become extremely brutal and repressive. And in terms of the Catholic Church, because I said I'm Catholic journalist, I do pay attention to this. Closing churches, we have a bishop who was imprisoned in there. He was under some 26-year sentence. We had to have other clergy flee. The one person who spoke at this seminar was a former political prisoner who back in February, along with some 200 other fellow political prisoners, including a bunch of priests, was just picked out of the country. He said it's Juan Sebastián Chamorro. He was a former presidential candidate, I think. And he said that Ortega and others like him are following Putin. He actually said, the quote in my article was, he imported Putin's technology, that the laws and the repressions that he is implementing in Nicaragua are the same playbook that Putin is using and has been using over his 20-some year regime, the constant legislation. For example, in 2016, they en enacted something. I remember I spoke at length with the Orthodox Church of Ukraine, Archbishop Yevgeny Urya, when I was in Kiev in the summer, and he explained that the Yarovaya laws, they're called, named for one of the, the Duma officials, I think. But basically, it's, we might allow these other religions, but you're going to have to register with the state and we're going to tell you how much religion you can actually practice. That's really what it comes down to. And enacting these laws, that's exactly that. That's exactly what Ortega has done. That's exactly what they do. We do have to pay attention to what's happening near us or one country over, two countries over, right under our nose, because it's all around. It's all about the lowest, basest form of trying to grab power at the expense of human life. That's really what genocide comes down to in so many ways. Real quick, because I, I know debaters have been waiting for a while. When you were talking about the numbers, and, and I have to admit, I'm not completely clear. I have to look at this data. I, I've stumbled across this a, a couple of times before, and I was talking to one of my Ukrainian colleagues about how to interpret it properly. I still have some questions. But on the UN's operational data portal, their data for the Ukraine refugee situations, they call it. And this website is data.unr. They list... As of now, as of December 5th, 6.3 million, actually it's 6,308,600 refugees from Ukraine recorded globally. And they have countries in the refugee response plan. And then I have a breakout for other countries neighboring Ukraine, which are Belarus and the Russian Federation. Belarus, I don't see any data for, but the Russian Federation as of June 30th of this year, the UN records, this is the number of refugees from Ukraine recorded in the country as of that date, again, June 30th, 1,212,585 refugees. And, and I have to be honest, for me to see that term refugee, I'm thinking like 
define refugee. I don't I really don't get the feeling that this was a willful leave here. This was like a let's get out of here and go over there. Oh, let's go to Russia. You know, that this is not something that was necessarily a choice, although there may be some people, of course, and we've met we've heard of them that they aligned more with Russia and they had ties there and went. But that's not the majority by any stretch of the imagination. Again, it's listing 1.2 million plus there. Then it says refugees from Ukraine who applied for asylum, temporary protection, or similar national protection schemes to date within that country. It lists 34,265. I remember actually, I think several months ago, tweeting this and asking the UN to explain. I don't know why I thought I'd get a response. And then I threw it to a couple of other people and again, a, a Ukrainian colleague, and she was just like, we're not going to get a good answer out of the UN on this one. If anyone has some more insight as something I've been meaning to follow up on, on these numbers, I would definitely appreciate it because I haven't had a chance to drill down more since then. Um, the final statistic, and then I want to be quiet so Timpater can speak, is the border crossings from Ukraine since the date of the full-scale invasion, February 24th of 2022. Under the Russian Federation, it lists, according to the UN, 2,852,000, okay, so that's going Ukraine, into Russia. Then it says border crossings to Ukraine from Russia since the first day of the full-scale invasion, and just as data not available. Again, I put those numbers out there as that resource. Go dig and let me know what you find, and I'll be digging too. Prince, Nancy, Alan, if you've got some insight there, that would help. I've gotten, uh, you and Miriam need to talk. Miriam may be able to help you with that in a very big way that you and I have talked about getting you and Miriam together. But because um, one of the things I got to tell you is what she's going to say is, let me call my buddy here, Dimitri Lubin Lubinitz, who is the ombudsman for Ukraine. That's just, yeah, it's, it's my buddy. She's got to call him, probably. It's my hit. She's got to call him or email or, or say, I happen to be in the country. Let me get in contact with something like that. But what a couple of things about the border crossings and, and things such as that. It brings to mind the story from the BBC, I think it was the BBC, about the girl Victoria, the two birthdays in the gynecological exam article. That was part of the title of the article. The situation when she ended up leaving Ukraine, she had gone to her aunt's house and the war broke out. After her aunt ran out of antibiotics that they needed, they decided they needed to get out of where they were, which was in the, I believe, the Sumi region, very close to the Russian border. The only safe road available was into Russia. They had no choice but to go into Russia. That is something in a situation that I think a lot of people found themselves in. I can also tell you that Miriam will be able to tell you about the only one, and I can find an article about it, I'm sure, the article about the still only one functioning border crossing between Russia and Ukraine. It is used daily for a small number of people who go from Russia to Ukraine. I've seen news stories about this with video because there's like a refugee center and everything really close by there to help people get settled and get themselves further into Ukraine. I think a lot of these people ended up in that kind of situation where 
the only safe, even think about it, even in Mariupol, the only safe route to get somewhere was to go to Russia, not to get yourself back into Ukraine. I think there's a lot of situations like that. I'm sure we can get better data, but it's, I don't think we'll ever get totally accurate data at this point, really. Realistically, I don't think we will. There, there are, there I think are some resources that, that may be able to help to pin this down a little bit better. The Ukrainian government will only ever, I think, officially say that it's the 19,546. I haven't checked for an update, but I think that is the number. Kids who are, have been illegally taken to Russia. That is the deported kids. That is what they will say. They are also very careful to make, very careful to make the distinction between deported into Russia and transferred within the occupied territories of Ukraine. That, that's, those are just a few more data points and things to think about and things to look at. I write really disorganized notes when I'm doing this kind of thing. And especially on Friday nights, I find that happening. So I'm going to go through the ones that I have jotted down in five different areas on this piece of paper, because I think I do have another point. But I'm going to debate her. I appreciate you being patient. I Sorry, man. That's what you get for being one of us. You get to, I'm sorry to make you wait. Go ahead and, and share with us now. Oh, thanks very much. Can you hear me okay? Can totally hear you just fine. Marvelous. And good morning. Very early morning from, from Scotland. Morning. I'm afraid my voice is not too good. I'm still struggling with the virus here, but it's all good. Um, I um, was interested in things Alan said earlier about why can't we appear to get people to understand about genocide? What's the blockage? What's this lack of an interface that we seem to have with other people, even of our own generation or, or, or close generations? Why can't they understand just how horrendous it is. And I was listening to Alan's family story and a similar one for me, but I can't speak from a, a Canadian viewpoint, but from a British viewpoint, if we're looking about education, about genocide, when I was a child in the UK, there were only three TV channels, three. And one of them, I remember being a very young child and a really scary, harrowing series used to come on called The World at War. This was shown often and it was the very first episode is Sir Laurence Olivier talking over images of a village in France that, that's still empty. There's no one there anymore. This marvelous series just goes on. I think it's 21 episodes. Just giving everyone this free education on terrestrial TV and a fairly captive audience because there are only three channels. Right from the age of four, in my case, we'd got this amazing history of a very recent war, a war that only ended 25 years ago. Then I don't know what it was like in Canada, but in the UK, when I was a child, every Saturday morning, the air raid sirens would go off. The local school would test the air raid sirens. I don't think my grandfather was particularly unusual in when I was five. He showed me the cupboard at the side of his chair in the lounge in which he kept gas masks, children's gas masks, a pistol, and he showed me how to use a grenade. This was the level of fear and awareness that people still had 
25 years after the war, in that city in which I was living, there was still rubble. There were still buildings that had been blown to pieces during World War II, and the city was trying to reconstruct, probably in much the same way, that in 25 years' time, Ukraine will be trying to rebuild, and I wouldn't be surprised. I've got relatives in Ukraine right now. I wouldn't be surprised if the children in Ukraine right now have, you know, it won't be me, but have another relative that's got a cupboard with a pistol and some masks. There'll be NBC masks and there might even be a grenade because that relative is traumatized from their experience of the war. There's an inherited, it's been studied, I'm, I'm not a psychologist, but it's been studied as this theory these days that there's an inherited trauma within families, a scar that spans generations to genocide. Just like Alan was discussing, I've, I've got relatives that survived war, and some didn't, and one that survived Nazi concentration camp and went on to live a long time, thanks to being given sanctuary by the British. Now, that's family history, and I'm wondering if one of the reasons that we can't, we that have this family link, can't appear to find this interface with others is that maybe they haven't got it. Maybe it's abstract to them. Maybe it's something they've only learned through TV or through a school curriculum, and they haven't got that direct family link, that experience of people in the family being really traumatized by it. The other thing I would say is flipping right over to the other side of the world. My life was two sides of the world, Australia and the UK. In Australia recently, where I was in education, children were taught in the curriculum really well at high school about the Holocaust, an excellent curriculum, elective on the Holocaust that the children could take. I remember the enthusiasm that teenagers really engaging with that and giving presentations. Then, these same children now, five, seven years later, and I'm, I'm talking about a specific group of children I know very well, see, if we look at Israel and Palestine, they can't really see what's going on. And my theory, and I'd, I'd welcome comments on this and feedback on this, is that they've been, their generation said, uh, and younger. They've been spent so much of their lives and do spend so much of their lives on social media, almost, oh, I'd say five, six hours a day on social media, on computers, on tablets, and so on and so forth. They're getting all of this propaganda. They're getting the sort of stuff that was talking and spoken about in the previous hour, the sort of bias to warping information that, that almost seems to chip away to try and destroy this wonderful education they've had at high school about the genocide. To summarize, it's, is there a difference? Is there a frustration we feel, those of us with families that have experienced the Holocaust, that have experienced Holomador? Is there a disconnect between us and those that only know it through abstraction? And even if schools, high schools, universities do give good courses on, on, on the Holocaust, on genocide, is that being nibbled away at by social media and by the bad actors broadcasting, for want of a better word at this time of day, broadcasting propaganda 
basically propaganda to, to, to nibble away at that and, and destroy the good work that's being done. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thanks, debater. I am going to refrain from talking about hot wings right now. This actually totally goes to the point that I hadn't gotten to in my disorganized notes. I will tell you about hot wings, but first we're going to go to Gina. Devana, those were excellent points. As you were talking, I was thinking of a couple of things. I agree with you that even the best programs, the best curricula to teach about the Holocaust, I think that they can be eroded, unfortunately, if it's not, if it's, if it doesn't go deep enough or if it's not reinforced enough throughout the life cycle. We can't, and, and I want to go back to Samantha Power's book here because she makes these excellent, incredible points, especially in looking at the various genocides that she looks at in this book. Again, the book is A Problem from Hell, America and the Age of Genocide. It won the Pulitzer Prize. It's a phenomenal book. It's considered one of the texts that you got to read if you're going to do genocide studies and it's well worth it. It's, if you haven't gotten this, I, I can't recommend it enough because it's just an incredible read and so informative. But she mentions, and this is actually, you know, with regard to the Shoah with the Holocaust. In, for example, the chapter on Cambodia, in that chapter, she says, direct quote, before it begins, genocide is not easy to wrap one's mind around. A genocidal regime's intent to destroy a group is so hideous and the scale of its atrocities so enormous that outsiders who know enough to forecast brutality can rarely bring themselves to imagine genocide. This was true of many of the diplomats, journalists, and European Jews who observed Hitler throughout the 1930s. It was certainly true of diplomats, journalists, and Cambodians who speculated about the Khmer Rouge before they seized power. The omens of imminent mass violence were omnipresent, but largely dismissed. The problem is that, again, it's just, it's so overwhelmingly hideous. Most of us, in, in some ways, that, that lack of imagination kind of points to a humanity that we would hopefully not act this way. It also works to our disservice. It's because we don't see it coming or we don't fully we're not fully prepared to accept that people are playing by very different rules than ours who are committing genocides. I take as an example, I'll never forget, I only took one self-defense course, literally one session, and it was part of a larger Taekwondo course. I wasn't very good at it, but the one thing that instructor said that night, I will never forget, I'm going back a number of years. He said, the first thing you have to get out of your mind when you are being attacked on the street is that they're playing by the same rules that you are. That shift is fundamental. We somehow have to be able to be more attentive, not just to giving these classes in school and saying, okay, you had your education on genocide in school, and now I expect you to keep up with that through the rest of your life. No, if you don't, it's like a language. If you don't use it, you're going to lose your facility in it or any skill set. We have to, and I know for every child always brings this up in our sessions, it's developing the tools, developing the language and making that and building community as a way of countering genocide. Because when we encounter each other in respectful settings that will allow for diversity and the respect and support of our basic human rights, we're far less likely 
to find ourselves in a situation where genocide or its early stages are being committed. That's the other point that I was thinking of as you were talking, debater, is that part of that education, I, I know this is happening. My goal is to pursue a doctorate in genocide studies. That's a little bit down the road. I can't speak to what the pedagogy, what the education, genocide education is. I'm sure this is part of it. I think that as everyday people who maybe aren't taking courses in genocide or, or even able to do a whole lot of reading, maybe this is our only time this week when we listen that we can actually really talk and think this through. We have to start thinking this is a process. We have to stop thinking that genocide is something that happens and it's, oh no, it's going on. What do we do now? I don't know. Let's wait. Maybe 20 years later, we'll acknowledge this is a genocide after it's all over. That's not the way we can continue to approach genocides because after the genocide convention, start counting how many genocides have taken place and are taking a place now. Reading Samantha Power's book is an eye-opener because that's just what it is. We've, we've had genocides in human history and obviously the Armenian genocide took place before the genocide convention was developed before the Shoah, before the Holocaust, it was before that. The fact remains is that even with the Genocide Convention signed in 1948 and then variously ratified by, by, by signatories, the fact remains is that genocides continue to go on, continue to go on. Obviously, what are we not seeing here? We're blowing through all the signs. And we have to start thinking of this as a process that we have to catch early. It's like disease. Do you want to fight the disease? when it's in its advanced stage and the most drastic measures are required that may or may not produce results? Or do you want to get it before it even starts? And to back that up even further, do you want to develop a culture where it's not going to start in the first place because you're taking care of your social health here? You're taking care of community bonds and the respect for basic human rights. That's why going back to Ukraine in 2014, I will never forget, Arch, this was speaking of 2014, but I will never forget the 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 day of that invasion, of the full-scale invasion, a few days after that, Archbishop Boris Glitziak, who was the head of Ukrainian Catholics here in the United States, and I've interviewed several times, I interviewed him the morning of that invasion. He was in Paris. All he said to me was, Ukraine is being crucified. He predicted the numbers a month before when I had an invasion because he'd lived in Ukraine for 20 years at that point. He founded a university over there. He was deeply connected with the Maidan, with business leaders, government leaders. He knew Ukraine through and through. And he said, this is what's going to happen if Russia pursues this invasion. But he also said, if the United States and other nations had done what they needed to do in 2014, had enacted the sanctions that needed to be enacted, had held Russia accountable then, we would not be here now. Would not be here now. There is no reason why it had to get to this point. As I said a little earlier, process. Stop thinking of it as something that is inevitable. Just to close out this loop here, because I see Alan has his hand up, is early in the first few days, the first I think it was within the first month of the full-scale invasion. I interviewed a genocide scholar on a podcast at my former publication, Jeff Benvenuto, who is one of the scholars at Gratz College, which has a PhD uh, program in genocide studies. And he said to me, and you can hear the frustration. That podcast is still out there. You can hear the frustration because he said, to paraphrase him, genocide always seems to be the word that we bring up after the genocide's taken place. We need to get to the point where we see what's coming and we stop it. It's so frustrating because we have, in so many ways, the tools. We just don't seem to want to fully use them. 
like I said, debater, excellent points there. And I just wanted to expand on them a little bit more. I'm very committed to stopping the process before it actually gets to genocide. That has to be, that has to be the new way to approach this, the way we should have always been approaching it, but it's got, it's mission critical. It's not optional. I want to go back to debater for a follow-up and then we'll go to Alan. Debater, go ahead. Thank you so much, Gina. I'm, I'm lost for words. Agree 100% with everything you said. Yeah, I was stunned. All I wanted to say was for those listening tonight that don't have relatives in Ukraine that support Ukraine, but in the more, let's not say distant, because that's not a kind way to describe it, but not with family there. I suggest an experiment. If you've got a mobile phone or a tablet or something like that, do a search in your app store or, or wherever you go to get your apps and get a Ukraine air alert. It's an air raid warning app. It will work anywhere on the planet. Just imagine that you have family there and imagine that you have children there. Select a region, maybe select Kiev Oblast or, or, or Odessa or, or wherever, Dnipro, Petrovsk, whatever, whatever you want to, just select one and pretend that you have relatives there and children there that you really care about, that you love. Then set the alarm in the settings, in the options, in the app as loud as possible. When that alarm goes off, think to yourself, I wonder if A, my children or that the children I care about, my relatives are going to get bombed tonight. Or B, is it going to get occupied? Are the children going to be taken away to Russia? Are my loved ones or are my imaginary loved ones that I've selected in this oblast, are they going to be taken away? Maybe by playing that psychological, almost multimedia game with oneself, one will begin to understand what the genocide that's going on right now feels like. That may help people to understand it a little more. The final point I would make is it's just to try and help with this again. I'm going to bring rock music into it and I'm going to bring art into it as well. I believe it was the United Nations building. I'm not entirely sure that used to have a, a, a picture by Picasso in the Guernica. In my yesterday, I listened to the Mariah report and someone was talking about some similarities they could draw between the Spanish Civil War and, and, and Ukraine. The Spanish Civil War is something I've studied a lot, and they are very different. There were atrocities committed during the Spanish Civil War. One of the first examples of what we might call Blitzkrieg was it was an attack upon Guernica, city of Guernica, and Picasso made a painting of this, and it ended up in, the, I think, the United Nations building. I'd suggest looking at that picture and, and reading about it, I'd suggest looking then at a poster from the Spanish Civil War, which translates into, if you tolerate this, then your children will be next. And thinking about those words, then listening to a song by a Welsh band, a Welsh-British band from the 1990s that has that title. If you tolerate this, then your children will be next. And even watching the video, because the video has people with no eyes that can't see what's happening. There are quite disturbing, subtle, but disturbing images in that video. 
that if one really thinks about it, one can see what they're talking about. They're talking about genocide and they're talking about turning one's eyes away from it. I don't think any Western leaders want to be seen in the future as having long war history allowing us to look back and say they turned a blind eye. They left it too late. They didn't, as, as you were saying, Gina, they didn't intervene in the early stages. It's always important to start when a problem is small. Don't leave it to become big. I think it's important that our leaders recognize that or history is not going to be kind on them. That's it, really. Get the app, create a pretend family, set the alarm really loud, see how it makes you feel. Look at Picasso's painting and maybe have a listen to that bit of Welsh rock music. Uh, thanks very much for indulging my rather tangential comments. Thank you. Out. Gina, go ahead. I was just going to say, Debe, those were not tangential at all because you've hit on what's a really critical way to develop empathy. And I, I, correct me if I'm wrong, but I do believe that For Every Child has brought this up before in, in previous sharing. When you were talking about the Air Raid app, when I was in Ukraine, I downloaded that and I basically stayed in two and traveled between two regions. I was in the views, I was in the West, and then I was in Kiev. When I came back, I still have that app on my phone. Months later, I was there in June and I still have my, the app on my phone. It went off. It was actually a quiet 10 days that I was there. I went off a couple of times, but, and I did have to shelter a few times. But then when I came back, Lviv, Lviv, where I stayed, the Ukrainian Catholic University, just next to it was struck and 10 people were killed. And I knew at that moment, I'm like, that app's not coming off my phone, not for one minute. It has gone off in the middle of the night here. It's gone off in church several times. And I refuse. As soon as it kicks in, I stop it. If you look at my timeline, you'll see I take a lot of pictures. It's still set to the view, it, it, which being in the West, obviously is not under the constant alerts that you tend to see obviously in the east some regions are just always on alert i refuse when people say what is that i explain this is what this is this is my air raid app this is what ukraine listens to on the website when you go on to is it war.gov.ua i think and it's bookmarked but you had the option to unmute the sound listen to it because that helps to build that empathy and that's the thing that if our education about genocide doesn't include process and doesn't include empathy, even when the survivors of the genocide have died. I mean, we are many, many, obviously, survivors of the Holodomor are dead. You're talking about people in their 90s who were young children then, okay, almost 100 years old at this point, right? 32, 33. So you're, you're talking about people in their 90s. We've lost so many people, survivors of the Shoah, of the Holocaust. And I've talked to scholars who said, I happen to be on the board of St. Joseph's University's Institute for Jewish Catholic Relations. And this comes up in the discussions. And these are people who have done this fantastic work for, like I said, 50 years of rebuilding Jewish Catholic relations after centuries of persecution by the Catholic Church and, and teachings of contempt towards the Jewish faith. Incredible progress has been made, incredible progress. But that one of the things they say is we are concerned because as more and more survivors of the Holocaust die, that's where you really have to be able to make sure that you capture testimony. In, in conveying that testimony, you also have to connect with, you have to build the empathy in the listener, even if they have no connection. That's to your point, debater, about the arts, because the arts 
and all, all of the arts, the performing arts, musical arts, the literary arts, the visual arts, they access different areas of our souls and our brains that allow us that maybe we can become numb to political debate or even deep historical debate or, or and certainly with social media, the shouting that takes place. Then when you hear a voice lifted in song or you see a powerful image, it arrests you with beauty or it arrests you with emotion and it, and it takes over. When I was at the two most recent Hall of the More commemorations I was at, one up at St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York and the other at the Ukrainian Catholic Cathedral here in Philadelphia last week, they both included music. That was part of the lament, the lifting up of the voices that said what our hearts wanted to say, but we couldn't say. Hearing the survivor testimonies, one last week that I attended, a survivor testimony was read in dramatic fashion. Even though my Ukrainian is very rudimentary, <laughs> I didn't get a lot of it. You could hear the emotion in the voice. Your point is not at all tangential. Why do you think, why do you think Russia is so quick to try to shut down the art, to co-opt the religion, to russify the language, russify the names, because they know the power of the culture. Even, as I said, I'm a religion journalist. I, I go there a lot. That's where my brain goes because that's what I do for a living. Even with the religion, when I've talked to religious leaders in Ukraine, they've said Russia well knows the power of the religion. So they, of course, want to co-opt it. That's why they want to shut down churches. This is not some theological debate. This is about, I know that by you having that church, you're going to have art and a way of doing things and a belief in the world and values that are going to conflict with my desire to, to absolutely overwhelm you with power. I'm going to shut you down. That's the same plan that Ortega is following in Nicaragua. He doesn't have any theological problems with the church. He was baptized in the church, and I think he might have even been married in the church. The experts that I was listening to at that seminar a few weeks ago had this has nothing to do with theology and everything to do with power and everything to do with I don't want that getting in the way of my desire for complete power over this spot on the earth and these people. The arts are power. They are the power in the human soul. And they make us human. They express our humanities. Reading the testimonies of survivors. There's someone on, actually, if you get a chance, I follow her. Unfortunately, I don't know her name, but her ex-account is Ukrainian Art History. He posts the most beautiful examples of works of Ukrainian art and gives an explanation and tells you what museum they're in, if you can buy a print. And it's just breathtaking. When you look at it, amid all, I make sure that I follow and keep up with her posts because amidst all of this too, we have to remember the Ukrainian people are just that, the Ukrainian people with a culture, with a history, with a heritage, with the language. We are not just engaged in some sort of political rescue here. This is to allow people to realize, to flourish as human beings and to realize their destiny in human history, to be the people that they are meant to be, however that works out, whatever cultural expressions, political expressions, however that takes place for the greater good of all on this planet, that, you know, to, to see people as dimensional. And if we see people as dimensional, we're going to be far less likely to demonize them, to stereotype them, to sizing them and then maybe start systematically saying, I don't want these people on the planet anymore. I don't think these people are even really people. That's the logic behind genocide. That's the logic. If we can embrace people 
as they are in their diversity and their complexity and their human dignity, then when the arts are, the arts are a major expression of that. Thank you for allowing me to go on to my very long, my very long riff, but I just got so excited by what you were saying to Bader, because I just couldn't stand to hear you say it was tangential when I just saw it as striking so much to the heart of what we're talking about. I want to add, it's definitely not tangential. When we look at the 10 stages of genocide, and I did add a graphic and another thread to my thread so that you've got it for quick reference, but that what art and music and creativity get us past is that harsh logic of stage one of classification. Classification is the beginning of creating other separating people in logical partitions. It's left brain thinking all the way. I'm a very analytical person. I tend to be very biased toward the left brain. But the right brain, where you're talking about expression and emotions and imagination and creativity, that always comes through in art, in music, in culture. And that is, Gina, I think to your point, one of the reasons why repression as a as an authoritarianism view focuses on elimination of those types of differences first if i get rid of the art and i get rid of the pictures and i get rid of the music and chip away at those parts of the culture then i take the step to books and language and it just continues from there if we build that empathy through visuals and art and audio with music, then I think it makes it easier for the soul to capture the words and the literature and build deeper empathy that also has that continuation. I think you pretty much have to bring every sense possible into that empathy to really make sure that it's entrenched in far more than just logic if you're going to educate people about genocide and why these facets are all so important to it. Prince, while I was talking, I lost track of hands again, so keep me honest. I think Alan was next and then TDK Bach and debater. Yes, go ahead, Alan. Thank you, Prince. Thank you, Nancy. Thank you, Gina. President Zelensky himself has talked about the power of art. And uh, this is what President Zelensky has said, wants to kill art because art has the power uh, of showing us something in the world that we're unable to see on our own. That's a paraphrase. I'll, I'll see if I can get uh, the direct quote and give it to you. But the batter, I want to say that you use two very important words to me, fear and awareness. And Gina, I would say that it it is a fear of witnessing genocide, uh, a fear of being a a member of a class or a people who might experience genocide that prevents us from acknowledging what's happening. It's the fear that freezes us, awareness. You know, it is up to those of us here, others in the countries we live in, educators and opinion leaders, political leaders, 
to give us the awareness that we need to acknowledge that genocide is occurring in Ukraine, to recognize that a genocide has been practiced before in places like Cambodia and Rwanda, also before in Ukraine. The Holodomor was genocide. Of course, the Holocaust was genocide. Awareness. Who can help us become aware? Our teachers, our parents, actually, or, or our grandparents, whoever lived through this experience. Awareness for all of us is probably the most important aspect of genocide that, that we can embrace. It's books, it's first-person accounts, it's that, but it's also more than that. Awareness is a kind of eye-opening experience. We need to find a way to have it. We need to find a way to open our eyes to the genocide that's occurring in Ukraine right now, this very moment, to the batter, fear and awareness, two very important words that you use tonight. Thank you. Thank you, Alan, and I agree 100% everything you said. Harking back to the Spanish Civil War and bring it into Ukraine, there was a poet called Federico Garcia Lorca that was shot by the fascist regime in Spain for the words he wrote, beautiful words he wrote. He spent a lot of time in the USA and a lot of time traveling. A very a gentle man, I think we can say in the true sense of the word. Earlier in, in this session, people were discussing the power of words and language and on my resume says that I'm a geographer, but I'm all sorts of things. One of the things that geographers can't quantify, Gina was talking about variables and effectively demographics and separating people into groups. I, it's something that geographers try to do. It's not very comfortable, really. It's used for analysis, but I, it's hard. Shouldn't really be separating people into groups. They're not grade A and grade B chickens at a supermarket. They're people, just people. We're all people. No matter what race, color, label, our nation state says that we are, we're, we're people and we all have a, a right to. And I think it was Gina and you, Alan, that both used that word dignity. Um, we're talking about the sorts of things that have been destroyed in Ukraine. Long ago, I brought up the subject of a missile attack in Kiev. I did a bit of research and found out that it blasted away a massive book repository of Ukrainian books and the targeting of libraries and the targeting of museums. These are all ways that I feel that Russia is trying to erase Ukrainian history and heritage again. This has been going on for a very long time, hundreds of years. Um, and we can't allow that to happen because those that know Ukrainians that have Ukrainian friends or family here will know that there are things that can't be classified about Ukraine. I'm sure it applies to every country on, on earth. There's a, and the word empathy has been used a lot here. There's a deep empathy in Ukraine. People can almost, 
understand communication without language, it's really hard to describe. It sound half crazy if you try to describe it. And also in, in terms of theosophy, in terms of theology, in terms of spiritual aspects of, of Ukraine, there's a deep spirituality in the country. It's the breadbasket of the world, but also a thing that the Russians have tried to negate again for hundreds of years is its deeply spiritual history and nature. Something that, again, is, is very hard to classify or even begin to describe, but it's there in the literature, in the poetry, in the paintings. And I think that's something that, again, we have a, a responsibility as, as fellow human beings, simply as fellow human beings, to try and preserve and to try to stop the Russians from destroying. And that's another reason to phone representatives and get them to carry on supporting Ukraine is that there's a lot to be learned from Ukraine and Ukrainians, not just technology, not just warfare, but philosophy, theology, poetry, art, and music. I could go on at length, but I won't. It's really hard to put into words, but I hope that given time, the world will get to see the sort of thing that I'm alluding to. Thank you. Out. Thank you, debater. TKD Block, I am sure that you want to talk about some culture. Go on ahead. You're right, Prince. Uh, thank you. And thank you, uh, debater and Gina, for bringing up the subject of art, beauty, and talking about it for a little while. I don't talk a lot about myself, but I think it's relevant to just state here that I have formal training as a classical musician. After a while, I went back to school and I recently had the opportunity to come alongside and listen to survivors of trauma in legal and quasi-legal contexts. I do not believe that I would have been able to do that work without the deep time immersed in beauty and specifically hymnody. You mentioned, and I think many of you here mentioned earlier, some of the uh, features of art and beauty that can help us as we face difficult issues like genocide and also practically come alongside our neighbors. Although I don't remember who has said it, and it may be more than one person that has said it, art has the ability not just to make statements, but to pose questions. Art can give us contrasts and we can sit with them. I was reviewing a video this week from Diane Lingberg, who is a psychologist with 40 years of experience working with trauma survivors in a number of contexts, including religious institutions and refugee camps. She was saying that part of the difficulty is that it makes sense if you have the Holocaust on one hand and God on the other, but what do we do when we have both? Art, I think, is one of those gifts that we've been given that can help us reckon with that reality. One example, Francis Poulenc, who was a French 20th century composer, he wrote an article called Dialogues of the Carmelites. It's somewhat based on accounts of, and Gina may be familiar with this, an order of Carmelite nuns in France that were persecuted during the French Revolution. If you've never, the whole opera is worth seeing, but if you've never had an opportunity to watch the final scene of Dialogues of the Carmelites, I'd encourage you to look it up. I think as of a few years ago, the Metropolitan Opera had a portion of their version on YouTube. Hulang's opera ends 
with the nuns from this convent, one by one, marching to the guillotine. And I got to be involved, actually, in course preparation for this when I was in school. And it was one of the most powerful musical experiences I have ever had to sit in the hall, even in the rehearsal, and watch as each singer walked across stage and you would hear the sound of the guillotine and their voices would drop out one by one. The beauty of the art and the way that Poulenc did it, the way that he constructed the themes and the music in that work provided a wonderful lens to help us face hard things that ability to look to music, to look to for an art, for example, the contrast, I love the contrast to the antinomy that you see in Bach. J.S. Bach can put really contrasting ideas together. You have joy and sorrow, and somehow they fit together at the same time. That's part of the reason that, he, that I have Bach in my handle. How does this tie to Ukraine? In between my education as a musician and going back to school later, I had the opportunity to travel with a choir to Ukraine. And some of the, you have been here and that have heard this, that I got to visit some Presbyterian and Baptist churches to meet some believers there. One of the things that was very striking was their love of beauty and the investment they would put into bringing beauty to their neighbors. When I was studying my other discipline after law school, I had a mentor who invited me up. She took me up to see the National Symphony Orchestra. The concert that they were doing was about Shostakovich, and they had an audio-video presentation of it, where as they were playing the Shostakovich, they were showing images from the Soviet Union and from Soviet realist propaganda and art. Because Dmitry Shostakovich was working under that regime, and I haven't read the music history and the musicology lately, it was very difficult for him and for other composers and artists in the Soviet Union. Why? Because the Kremlin was trying to control the art. Even the Kremlin respected and understood the power of the art and that it needed, if they were going to achieve their revolution and maintain their power and their eschatological vision for a communist future, they needed to control the art. And so it was very striking sitting in the Kennedy Center, listening to Shostakovich, looking at the pictures of the propaganda in the Soviet bloc architecture, remembering what it was like to be in Ukraine and seeing Ukrainians, one of whom came up and just wanted to let us know, even though he didn't speak English, he just wanted us to know that he was Ukrainian. The sacrifice that they were investing to bring beauty to their neighbors through music, through architecture, through art, through embroidery, and through flowers, it was humbling to see the creative expression once those restraints were off. And they were also, at the same time, thinking creatively and investing in how to serve the poor. Often, I think for me, being here in the West, I've seen beauty and mercy ministries set in opposition to each other. 
but I don't think I could have learned understood how they can fit together had I not had the chance to go and learn from the people that were in Ukraine. And I would say that has changed my life to this day. Thank you for bringing up the art. I think that there's one more quote that I could use to tie it together. Actually, two. I don't have them ready at hand, but Gina, you were talking about accepting the dignity of human people for who they are. One of my favorite quotes comes from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was executed by the Nazis shortly before the end of World War II. In his short book, Life Together, about Christians living together in the church, he has a section on the discipline of holding one's tongue. He puts it beautifully. I can't summarize it nearly as beautifully as he says. But he talks about when we hold our tongues, and we listen to those who are around us, we have the opportunity to see God's creativity in them because God doesn't make them as we would make them to be. That opportunity to see beauty and dignity in people tied to the concept of creativity. Well, that's the kind of quote that's been a little bit of a vista for me, like coming up to the top of a mountain and then suddenly you can see possibilities in all directions. I'm grateful to my brothers and sisters and neighbors in Ukraine who helped make that real to me, not only in new ways, but in ways that were sacrificial for them. I'll listen. Thanks. That is everything and more that I thought that I would hear from you, TKD. TKD and I have exchanged some messages and, and reconnect very strongly on a few things. Seriously, there there are like, almost no words, except I think I, I've found a couple. And and the connection to music, as I've shared actually privately with PKD, has gotten me through, and actually Gina knows this too, has gotten me through some of the hardest times in the last almost two years. Even throughout my life, it has. Coming up and hearing you share what you just shared, TKD means a lot to me. There, there are feelings that cannot be replaced. There are expressions that cannot be had without the assistance of music. In my personal humble opinion, it's just the way it is. There's something about it. A lot of that for me goes back to my history. There's nothing like being in a, a full concert hall on the stage playing with a hundred piece orchestra being one little piece of that huge orchestra playing in an amazing piece, there's nothing that can replace that, not even listening to it, and the expression that goes along with that. And you can see how Ukraine is fighting every day, not just fighting on the front lines, but fighting for her culture. I see performances by I, I see opera performances happening there. I see large orchestral performances happening there. And those things matter much, so much. And I'm so thankful that they are still happening. I do want to go to Gina and then go back to TKD Block for a response. But Gina, please go first. Although I saw For Every Child had her hand up. I wanted hey, to. She dropped down. 
Oh, okay. I wanted to, first, Burbachat, I want to thank you because I was referencing a lot of your previous sharings. Thank you. It's always, it's always very inspiring to me. TKD, just to, again, tie into what you were saying, which was beautiful. I, as you were speaking, I was thinking of an, a Ukrainian artist that I came across this week, again, through that account that I referenced earlier, Ukrainian art history. If you haven't had a chance, look up the artist Ala Horshka, that's A-L-A-H-O-R-S-K-A in, in the Roman alphabet there. November 28th was the, I guess, the 53rd anniversary of her murder. And she was an artist, a human rights activist, and Ukrainian art history had featured a piece of her work, which was just so compelling. And I, I just kept digging about her. And she was actually killed in, as I said, I guess it was 1970. No, she was 1970. She was found dead. She had been an artist. Now, again, Ukraine, of course, was under Soviet rule at that point. She was part of this group called, and I'm going to mispronounce this, I know, but it was Please, Ukrainians in the audience, help me out with that. That was the group that was a, a resistance group that had formed, promoting Ukrainian identity. They'd formed right amidst the, the communist regime in the 60s, which that, that word that I stumbled over pronouncing means like the 60s group. And she was considered one of the souls of that group. And she had done, a, and in fact, unfortunately, Russia has destroyed a lot of the murals that she did. She, when she had completed school, of course, still under communist rule, she was getting these assignments to be like a state artist, from what I understand. And as she really embraced her Ukrainian identity and started to allow that to come through her art, then the KGB started destroying her work, banning it from display. Right now, the remaining work, which a lot of it, I think, was then she had these murals in Donetsk, that a lot of it's been destroyed. They're not going to know until the war is over how much of that work actually survived. She, think of that. Here she is doing art in complete defiance of the regime. According to her bio, she was expelled many times from the Union of Artists of Ukraine because of her work, again, under Soviet rule. She was blacklisted in Kyiv, and she did that paid project work in Donbass in the industrial areas doing these murals because that was the work that she could get. And she then, artists never stay in their own lane, right? They're always seeking other people. I know I, I, I play music myself. They're always looking for the other artists in the rooms. She was moving in this network of writers and journalists and other artists. And together they were really rediscovering, creating and promoting Ukrainian identity. Many of them were arrested. They were deported to labor camps tortured. And she ultimately was shot to death in her father-in-law's house in the Kivo Blast. She was going to pick up like an old sewing machine, a family sewing machine or something, and she was killed. And it, of course, the death was ruled that it was killed by her father-in-law and then he committed suicide or something like that. Later, no one really bought that. In the 90s, they did see that the file on the case was just, it was just so falsified. And unbelievable. The, the, theory, the prevailing theory is that she was killed by the, the KGB because her art was dangerous, her life was dangerous, her activism was dangerous. To fast forward, if any of you are familiar with the Ukrainian singer Jamala, which is the kind of a, a short version of her name, not the professional name, she's a Crimean Tartar, and in 2016, she represented Ukraine at Eurovision with the song 1944, which was about 
1944 deportation of the Crimean Tartars, her own great-grandmother lost her daughter during that deportation. There was one line I remember hearing when I've heard her sing that song in different performances in Where's Your Humanity? Because the, the, the lyrics are, are partly in English. It's a very powerful song. And she gives an incredibly powerful performance with it. But where's your humanity? To me, that really ties up a lot of what we've been talking about in this last hour or so, the connection between genocide, which is so utterly the opposition of humanity. You have to be inhuman to dehumanize. And, and the very things that attacks are the things that express and make us human, these arts. It, we're seeing that in order to prevent genocides, in order to prevent this from ever happening again, this is where we need to really dig in, explore and promote the understanding of what is genocide. How do we stop this process? The arts are going to come to our assistance here in this process as we've been, as we've been talking about. So I just keep going back to debater because I just like I said, it, it just breaks my heart. You said the word tangential, it's, it, it, but it, you know what? It triggered because I just had to get in there and respond. And you can just see how this discussion has flowed from that because I think we've really touched a nerve tonight in, in this session on what we hold dear and what we know to be right. Again, watching those, as I mentioned earlier, watching those hearings with the four college presidents who, you know, and and. You can Google this, you can watch the testimony, but you can tell one person, one commentator described them as hostile. They were like hostile witnesses and they were hiding behind a lot of legalese and they were repeating each other's phrases and everything was so carefully constructed. Obviously, there's decorum when you are testifying before congressional leaders. But at the same time, one of my takeaways, aside from the fact that that there was this utter lack of moral clarity and the ability to use the word genocide and even think along those lines was a sense of detachment. I'm not trying to, I can't read hearts. I don't know what's in their hearts. I'm basing this on their words and their actions in that actual moment and, and watching them and their testimony. Again, we've seen in the course of following this genocide in Ukraine, certainly we've seen Ukraine's officials have to really hold it together. God bless the ambassador to the United Nations, Sergei Kozlitsia, I don't know how he sits in the room with the Russian Federation's delegation and manages to not just want to fly across the room at the nonsense, knowing his own people are being slaughtered. Even there, with all the decorum, I don't think anyone could could say that he is detached or uncaring. I think of ambassador, Ukraine's ambassador to the U.S., Oksana Makarova, dubbed the woman who never sleeps, as I've heard her dub many times, because she just works so hard. While she may not she, her demeanor is very calm. It's very measured. I don't think anyone could ever say that the humanity, that, that there's this cool detachment from what she's doing. So the point I'm trying to make here is that to, to remain human in this process, to remember that's really what we're about here, fighting genocide. We are fighting what's not human and reaffirming what is human. Thank you, folks, for taking us in that direction tonight. It's been really inspiring to me. I, I hope, Prince and Nancy, that we haven't strayed too far from the topic. I don't know how much of the report we'll get to tonight, but I, I think this has been fruitful. So I just I just throw it to you to uh, to take us from there. Is there only did the other hands to take it from there, and that's where it is gone. And that's fine. You know exactly what I mean by that. And you've thrown it into God's hands, and God has directed this, this direction tonight, period. That's okay. I've closed the report for the night. I do not have the report open on my screen anymore. It's not going to happen. 
because this conversation is too important and we're understanding we are learning enough and not enough we're learning so much and we are understanding genocide in a way that this report isn't going to show us we can do this report another day we can do this report on another friday night but this conversation has started and it is moving so organically and so beautifully that there is a reason for it. Our intention is always to be able to share with people to help them to understand genocide. We've gone through so many different aspects of genocide and how it applies and what we know about it and what we don't know about it. I've I've got notes of things that I've wanted to say, but I have to say really truthfully honest, what you guys are saying is more important than what I have to say. It's all input that is so valuable that I don't want to miss a word of it. I am going to I'm going to go back to TKD blocks or follow up like I said I was going to. This is just amazing. Just a great conversation. We really are learning so much from each other about our feel. It's been a rough week. It's been a rough week. This is I I think processing by trying to understand genocide and trying to see it happening in different ways. We're talking about the cultural way. We're talking about the religious way. We're talking about so many different ways, but we're also seeing because of bringing up Nicaragua and a little more previously and and talking about the things in the United States, even as the judgment came down about the uh, separation of families, all of these things we can see, as I say repeatedly, Putin's tentacles all over the world and Putin's tentacles in so much of this. And what it's doing is it's helping to bring light, helping to bring light on some areas that we didn't realize need needed to have shown on them. That is what we're doing tonight. That's okay. We're rolling with it. TKD Black, go ahead. Thank you, Prince. As you mentioned that what has happened in this uh, space and then also I think last week in in this discussion where you all were very patient in letting the discussion go where it was going to go, I'd like to suggest that the fact that we have such an organic and fruitful discussion, there are a number of factors to it. One of them is that you, Prince, and Nancy, and Gina, and so many of you on that team, Ellen, so many of you on that team that work as co-hosts, you're doing deep research and you have a deep command of the facts, right? Gina in particular has a deep command of the facts in, in some pretty broad areas. That's a tremendous amount of work for me to be able to see almost the art and the creativity, knowing and understanding these things so well that we can bend with each other to learn. I think that's a huge gift. There are things, too, about this discussion that are incarnational, and that's a term that you'll sometimes see used in Christian theology, and it's tied to the fact that Um, Christians believe that the Bible teaches that God himself, Jesus Christ, became man and lived with us. And so it's not just that when we say God is love, that God is love, but 
he came down and he actually loved us enough to like live with us and, and then die for us. We talk about incarnation or embodiment in that we're not just going to speak the truths, but we're going to live them out. Right? I think it's a beautiful thing that so many of you here are not just talking about how do we learn, how do we listen. You're modeling that for us and you are creating a space where we can practice those skills. I'm going to shift to a second point and then I'm going to come back around. Gina, I think that's so cool that you mentioned cultural restoration. And there's some mourning that happens because we don't know how much art and how much tradition is going to be lost, right? Your point about being able to recover that or to begin anew in crafting a, a tradition is an important one. The first half of my handle, TKD Bach, is TKD for Taekwondo. Taekwondo is a Korean martial arts, and it's a uniquely Korean martial art. And as I was taught in Dojang, Korea, in the early half of the 20th century, was occupied by the Japanese. The Japanese were essentially colonizing them or occupying them. And so they imposed some restrictions on Korean culture. When Korea was finally liberated from that oppression and from those restrictions, from not being able to practice aspects of their culture, or particularly their martial arts, right? Because that's dangerous to the occupiers. And folks came together and they said, you know what? We want to have a distinctly Korean martial art. That is how Taekwondo was born. It was a new art, but it was drawing on older traditions. And it was a conscious response and regrows after oppression and after being told for several decades that they were not allowed to exercise certain aspects of their culture. For Gina to mention that there are artists in Ukraine that are working on that, I think is a very important sign of hope for us. And it makes me curious about other examples in history where we've seen that be successful. Now I'm going to wrap around to make one final point about art, and it's a little bit indirect, but I think it'll make sense how I get there. Yesterday, I was reading an investigative uh, report about the findings of abuse within an institution that I'm familiar with. The report, at the end in the recommendation section, it referenced some principles from SAMHSA, from the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration in the United States. In reading this report, I learned that SAMHSA has recommended six key principles of a trauma-informed approach. Safety. Number one is safety. Number two, trustworthiness and transparency. Number three, peer support. Number four, collaboration and mutuality. Number five, empowerment, voice, and choice. Finally, number six, cultural, historical, gender issues. Isn't it interesting? For those of us that have been listening to this space for a while, I suspect many of us could actually point to ways that this space has promoted one or more, or perhaps all of these, for each of us in different ways. I'd like to thank you for helping me to put two and two together tonight and to helping me realize that art can actually provide 
a role in helping us to think about and apply some of those principles in a constructive way. I mentioned before that art is something that helps us sit with questions. In the Bible, for everything that Job's friends got wrong, at least they sat with him in silence for several days on the front end. As we serve our neighbors who are suffering, as we seek to prioritize Ukrainians to take a victim and a survivor-centered approach, as Gina said, as we think about the role of listening in that, the arts are a valuable gift that will help us not just in our own personal lives, but in our communion and our friendship and our relationship with those who are going through dark times. Because art and creativity, whether we're viewing it or enjoying it or coming together or finding ways to create it ourselves, it's one of the blessings that I think facilitates sitting together with questions. Because as we continue to face the evil, and Prince, you mentioned that you'd close the book with all the evidence in it, there's so much evidence there's so much evidence and it's going to be overwhelming. The art and the beauty will help us to work together, to sit together with each other, to sit with Ukrainians, to listen to them, and to remember that it really is okay, even though it's hard. It's okay that this side of heaven, that we won't have all the answers. Art provides that way to sit together with the questions. And sometimes sitting together with the questions, I would say this too from my own experience, is one of the most healing things that we can do. It's one of the most victim and survivor-centered things that we can do. I want to thank all of you as listeners and hosts for allowing this conversation to take an organic flow. I'm sorry I'm speaking a little bit too long, but I think it's very important that if we have, we're going to have no shortage of atrocities, particularly when the investigators are finally able Lord willing to reach Mariupol, right? There is a lot more to come. I am grateful to all of you here in this space for prioritizing the people in Ukraine and for prioritizing your listeners in a way that will equip us to more sensitively come alongside people who are in deep suffering that experience with art and that experience with following your example in this space, uh, there is no doubt in my mind that there will be ripple effects as you are equipping us and others to come alongside Ukrainians and others in a victim-centered way that acknowledges the creativity that is in their own personalities and the individual questions that they have and that facilitates that transparency and trust that comes from sitting together in silence with questions, using and acknowledging and just enjoying that beauty and creativity 
can be a bridge. Thank you for presenting that in ways that invite us to creatively think about all of the many different ways and many different giftings that we can use to make sure that we respond in ways that help us put each individual that we meet front and center. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. For every child, if you're listening, you keep dropping. Come back up here. We want to hear from you and what you have to say. And we'll make it work somehow. We'll get there. <laughs> Just keep on trying. I think Alan was next, and then we'll go to debater. Go ahead, Alan. Thanks, Prince. I, I was just going to say to uh, Tikita Bach, uh, I could speak about uh, Shostakovich forever. I'd suggest to every listener here, you listen to his choral symphony uh, about Bobby Yar. This is a uh, symphony about genocide. To the batter, Federico Garcia Lorca, what a great poet. Executed, not, he didn't die. He was executed at age 38 in Spain. A gay man living in Spain, a great poet. His art, the fascists in Spain tried to extinguish. And so uh, somehow tonight, Gina and Nancy and Prince the conversation has gotten around to art and the power of art to express the very, very depths of, of human longing for peace and for companionship and for a community held together in strength and for the future. That's what Ukraine is fighting for right now. Ukraine is fighting with all of its power for its future, for its sovereignty, well, to protect its people. Art has something to do with this, but, but art has little to do with this in the midst of war. I'm sure there will be all kinds of symphonies and books, poems, and all kinds of other expressions of art, paintings that, that tell us what Ukraine has been through since 2014, since 24, almost 10 years. And, and these expressions of the human spirit through art will not only heal all of us, they will heal all of Ukraine, all of the Ukrainians who have experienced this war, this genocide. I don't know what else to say. I really don't. I will shut up. Thank you, Prince. Thank you, Nancy. Uh, thank you, Gina, for this extraordinary weekly segment, Understanding Genocide. If you can understand genocide, maybe you can understand the, uh, the human spirit as George Bernard Shaw said, man's inhumanity to man. It continues. We see it. We need to acknowledge it. We need to talk about it. Thank you again, Prince, Nancy, Gina, the batter. Thank you all. Good night. See you tomorrow. Harum Slava.
Thank you, Alan. You, you all have made me need to go through a big, huge stack of old programs because I can't remember what of Shostakovich I've played, but I know that I've played Shostakovich and it would probably be quicker to go through a pile of programs than to listen to every single one of them. I may do, but actually both. And, but yeah. It, listen to it while you're going through the pile of programs. It's good. You know what it's going to end up doing though, going through the pile of programs is remembering playing a bunch of other pieces. And I have a hard time still listening to classical music because I miss playing it so much. But I have resolved to listen to the Messiah more than once before Christmas. I better get started on that. Gina, go ahead. Sure. I wanted to of a, of a sort about Jamala, the singer that I had mentioned. And in news recently, back at the end of November, Russia added her to their wanted list, which is not going to affect Jamala in that she doesn't live in Russia. She actually lives in Ukraine. But it's, I think it's really interesting that they feel this threatened by her. And a lot of it has to do with her activism on the part of the Crimean Tatars and of, of whom she is a part. She had actually said, and this is a New York Times article that covered the ban, this received wide international attention, this move by Russia because of her activism. She, back in, looks like 2022, I think, she had said to President Zelensky, and this is a quote, no matter where I am, the first priority for me is to remind that foreigners came to my house to kill and mutilate lights, to destroy and rewrite my culture. It happened in 1944 and then in 2014 and now again. Now everyone in Ukraine understands that this can happen to anyone if evil is not stopped and brought to justice for crime. That was her direct quote to President Zelensky back in November of last year. What Moscow's doing is they are trying to shut it down, trying to shut down the voices that are most likely to hold them to account. This is where I, I know that TKD had mentioned the prophets or had mentioned religions. Let, let's back it up. For those who might be familiar with the Bible, in the Bible, we had the prophets. You think of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Jonah and a whole bunch of, a whole bunch of prophets. Who was the prophet? The prophets were in, in ancient Israel, they were the voices of God speaking to the people. Again, whether or not you believe in a spiritual reality isn't the point. The word prophet is used widely based on that. The idea is that prophetic voices, be they artists, be they religious leaders, be they children, they remind us of who we are. Artists, which we're talking about tonight here, we've talked about how they are able to reach parts of us that aren't as easily reached in debate, discussion, logical thinking. They touch those deeper parts of us, allow us to connect with empathy, but they also have that prophetic mission, that prophetic mission that holds us to account, that criticizes, that says, no, you're not doing this right. No, this is an injustice. This is not right. You are marginalizing these people. You are not living up to your full humanity here. That's a very important part of being an artist. In fact, you mentioned Shasta and Babin Yar. Early in the full-scale invasion, I had the honor of being at Babin Yar when I was in Ukraine this past summer and spent an afternoon there. I remember prior to that, months prior to that, in the first 
I believe it was within the first two weeks or literally 10 to 14 days of the full-scale invasion, Russia, when it was attacking Kiev, had attacked, there's a television tower right near Bob and Yar. President Zelensky had tweeted, this is history repeating itself because Bob and Yar is the site of a horrific massacre of Jews in Ukraine by the Nazis. And it is now a memorial site. This is history repeating itself. In, in writing the article about that, I was researching to provide some historical context, what had happened at Bob and Yar. But what was interesting in doing that article was that under Soviet rule, it wasn't memorialized. It took a very long time, and it was only through Ukraine's efforts that site was ever properly memorialized. There was a poet who actually wrote, and I, I want to say that Shostakovich commented on this in a form of poetry as well, but I don't think that's correct. At any rate, there was a poem in 1961 by Evgeny Yetvushenko called Baba Yar. And at one point, I believe there was something about they were going with the Soviet regime there was going to put something like a, a sport, not a sports complex, but some sort of a, an entertainment center, just something generic, just basically pave over. This didn't happen. These atrocities didn't happen. This poem was one of the things that sparked at least a very modest, they ended up putting just a small obelisk on the site in response to the outcry that artists were among spearheading for the lack of memorialization of this site of atrocities committed against the Jews of Cave. Even then, that obelisk did not say that they were Jewish. It said, this at this site, citizens of the Soviet Union perished. It was something like that. I remember that being, you can look this up, on descriptions of the history of Bob and Yar and, and the, the, how it would happen initially and then how it came to be commemorated. Again, the artists were fundamental in getting those atrocities commemorated. And of course, under Ukraine, when Ukraine gained independence, then the move to properly memorialize this was filled. And it's a very beautiful and haunting site to, to be at. If you ever get a chance to go, please do go. The next time I go to Kiev, it's going to be, it's one of the top stops on, on my list. It's, for me, it's a site of pilgrimage to be able to honor those who perished there and honor those too who saw to it that those who perished there didn't get forgotten there. Again, the role of the artists there. And I, I see what Jamala is doing now. In fact, it's almost a kind of a badge of honor to be banned by Russia because that it, it, it's an affirmation that you're doing something right, that you're standing on the right side of law, order, or human dignity, which cannot be emphasized enough. Goodness, kindness, all of the things that we aspire to, to be. On the flip side of that, speaking of art and genocide, this is another area that we have to be conscious of in artistic expression because for example, what with the Rwandan genocide several sessions ago, we had talked about the role of media. One of the, and you can look this up on the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum's website, there were actually, there was a journalist who was a radio journalist who was convicted and a, I believe a singer, like there was one singer who would use the euphemisms that, that triggered, that were used in the genocide on incorporated them into his music and would perform this at concerts. We also, with art, need to acknowledge the potential, the misuse of art, the perversion of art and the arts 
in fomenting genocide. We see this in Russia on a daily basis. When, for example, the one singer, I, unfortunately, I can't remember her name, but I can see the video so clearly. Anton Gershchenk is a wonderful person to follow on Twitter. He's a, a government advisor and very prolific. He posts some really incredible videos that just open your eyes as to what's going on. I believe this is one of his posts. There was a singer when the Wagner Group was still headed by Prigozhin and was running around sledgehammering the, it, its defectors and prisoners. There was a Russian singer who had a song called something like Wagner, raise your sledgehammer. Basically, the, the brutal practice of using a sledgehammer to murder a human being and then to be proud of that and then to create stylized sledgehammers as Wagner did was then memorialized in a song that this woman is performing and whipping up the crowd to program them to think this way, to normalize this. There's another singer in Russia, again, Anton Gurushenko, I believe, is the one who's, who will post videos of this, and he's a young man, and he is, I think his stage name is Shaman. And again, using his music to promote Putin's agenda. So we need to be conscious of these things with art while we're on the subject, that art can definitely prevent and help us to heal from genocide. Misused, it can also, though I dare say you would not properly call it art, but you would call it the arts maligned into propaganda. But still, nonetheless, the power of music to, to maybe even override our judgment, uh, just as a quick example, again, not to, to sideline the conversation, but to give an example, a couple of years back, I live in a city that has a tremendous amount of gun violence. Unfortunately, gun violence is pervasive, but I live in a city that has a lot of it. And I had the opportunity to interview two young men. They were with their counselor, they, and they agreed to speak with me on an anonymous first-name basis. They did a podcast on this. You can Google this. It's on gun violence. If you Google Gina Christian podcast gun violence, it should probably come up. It was at my former publication. And I asked them to tell me they had both been adjudicated by the courts. They were not in jail, but they were in treatment programs that were court ordered and they had been involved in gun violence. I was never told the charges that they faced or if they had killed anyone, but they had both been involved in gun violence. I knew that much. And they had seen friends die. Then we had a lengthy one hour conversation. One of the things that came up in the process was, and I didn't bring it up, because I didn't want to bring it up. I wanted to see how their discussion would unfold. I asked a few simple questions. Both young men and the counselor brought up music and the music that they listened to, which was a lot of very violent lyrics set to various beats, various urban beats that encouraged shooting, killing, ambushing, all of these things. They brought this to me, said, this is part of what is perpetuating this cycle. And I think that we need to look at that and say, this music, even if you listen to, there's probably nothing wrong with the beat. It can be very catchy. It can be very innovative, very expressive. At the same time, what are the lyrics? There's, the point I'm trying to make is that when we listen to the arts to determine if they're being appropriated to, to serve a genocidal purpose or at least to demonize or dehumanize people. Again, genocide is process. It's not like we're necessarily going to come out and hear lyrics and say, go kill someone. No, more than likely what you're going to hear 
the slur in there. Another example in the United States has created a media furor. Jason Aldean, I think, was the song. The artist with the try that in a try that in a country town was the song. Uh, it, it generated a lot of controversy. Forgive me if I've attached the wrong singer to that song, but there was a, a song that was basically saying, try that in a country town. And people were saying, what do you mean by this? You know, I mean, are you advocating for vigilante gun violence here? Or again, it's an awareness. It's something that we need to be conscious of because you can be singing along and think, yeah, it's a great beat. It's like, what did he just say? Long-winded kind of diversion there, but tying up some other aspects of the arts as they relate to genocide prevention and just genocide awareness in general. That actually brings up for me a, a personal story where I ended up having to change my ringtone for my phone this week because all my friends are heathens. doesn't quite apply when I'm getting phone calls from some specific people associated with Maria Report. I don't, I, I loved this song. I do love this song. I don't know that I'd ever listened to it and listened to the words as much as I did this week. I changed it. I, I changed it, and uh, I'm much happier with my new ringtone. You're so right. It's what do you put in. Uh, I remember hearing this so much when I grew up. I grew up in the time where they played the music backwards in church for me so that I could hear things. But it's And that's really getting off the subject. In some ways, what you put in is, is somehow what you get out in a lot of things. Debater, I am so sorry for you waiting for so long. I know you understand, though, and I appreciate it. Thank you. Go ahead. Oh, still got my voice. Thank you. We're talking about art and genocide and empathy and understanding and humanity. And I hope that you'll permit me just to move slightly to the west of Ukraine. Poland experienced the kind of oppression of culture that TKD uh, referred to. For many years, I, I went in Poland in 96 and people said to me, for as the war ended very recently, they were talking about what we refer to as World War II. They felt obviously it ended at the end of the 1980s. And uh, the oppressive regime they had, another art form continued. And one that we've, I don't think we've touched upon yet was film. To help us understand some of the horrors, existential horrors that Ukrainians have experienced and continue to experience, I don't think it's too far of a stretch to suggest that it might be useful to have a look at, for example, some of the films made by Andrzej Vajda. I would suggest a film called Canal, K-A-N-A-L, about people trying to survive in the, I believe it's the Warsaw Ghetto, in the sewers. I think that movie was made in 1945, but I struggle to find a more powerful illustration in film form of what it's like to try and survive absolutely bare survival under bombardment, starving, in, in dreadful conditions, the kind of conditions that I know Ukrainians will have found themselves in and still do. That's one way that a nearby nation under oppression, its art forms can help inform people now to perhaps understand what's happening and been happening in Ukraine and maybe to imbue them with more uh, a sense of a higher degree of empathy uh, than, than they may have already. 
Then a thing that I found quite amazing in, in, in terms of the repression of Polish culture was that there was a film director called Krzysztof Kieslowski. We've been talking about theology and religion as well, and he managed to make a, a series of 10 films called the Decalogue about the Ten Commandments. He also managed to make a film called Blind Chance under the Soviet regime. He managed to make a film about a lecturer that was holding illicit lectures during the Soviet regime. I think that film has been remade in Hollywood, but it's really worth a watch of the original. The reason I'm, another reason I'm talking about this, apart from trying to use sort of film from one nation that was oppressed under the Soviet regime to illustrate the kind of thing that Ukraine has gone through under a Soviet regime, is that I would like to know more about Ukrainian film. It's something that I'm weak on. And something that I fear is that the trouble I am experiencing in finding out more about Ukrainian film from 1930 onwards might be related to the oppression that the Ukrainians have experienced. Where is that film? Where are the movies? Have they been destroyed? What was made? what exists, who are the people that we should be looking at, what the movies that we should be looking at made by Ukrainians, Ukrainian film directors. I do know that movies are being made now. I know one person involved in film production in Ukraine, and I know that there are others here that come on the Mariah report that, that are involved. That's just a question. It's if anybody out there, anyone here tonight knows more about this aspect of Ukrainian art and culture, that's something I'm weak on. I can't find much out about. Then when we're talking about, in terms of Bible, I can't conjure up the quote entirely now, but in terms of what the Ukrainian people are going through, I, I heard a quote recently from a priest, and I think it's from the book of Daniel, and I found it quite powerful and prescient. He said, I think it's from the book of Daniel, he said, the strongest steel is forged in the hottest part of the furnace. I thought that was a, a good way of describing exactly what's happening to the Ukrainian people right now. Please forgive me for, for misquoting it, but that's how I understood it from him. Thank you. Thanks very much. Out. Thank you, debater. Go ahead, Gina. Just wanted to share another piece of Ala Horshka, the artist that we were talking about. And it, this just to me, this episode relates the arts empathy, the passing on of or understanding of historical past trauma and pain through atrocities and this moment in her life that was pivotal, pivotal to her life and that ultimately led to her losing her life in the service of the truth is just worth sharing. Before I share that really quickly, I also just wanted to say to the point that debater had made in TKD Bach, and again, as I said, I'm a religion journalist, I go there. With the arts, uh, the other reason that I think that Russia and totalitarian regimes also want to shut down religious communities or faith communities, regardless of what the particular denomination or faith tradition is, because there's a dense relationship between the arts and faith communities in, in terms of just, for example, to take one major world religion, Christianity, hundreds and hundreds of years of two, two millennia of art traditions attend to that faith. And certainly in the other major religions of the world, 
no different. And certainly in Judaism, Hinduism, Buddhism, indigenous religions, it, it, it obviously it is not for those who are not of a faith tradition to say that arts are always religious or limited to faith traditions. That's not the case at all. There is that dense nexus, which I would say also speaks not just to the, obviously when genocidal regimes go after faith communities, it's not just because it, it, part of it is because of the leadership, the, the spiritual power, the cohesiveness of the community, all of those things that are a threat to genocidal regimes. It's a different authority, and that challenges them of the temporal power of the genocidal regime. But also, because those communities have a really strong arsenal of the arts, and <laughs> that is a, a way of protest, of prophecy, of truth-speaking, of building communities. It's a very dense network. It's a very potent network. It's just another angle I wanted to highlight. But to get back to Ala Horshka, I had been saying how she was actually in Soviet Ukraine. She was part of this. Okay, this is the job. And believe it or not, her family was actually very Russian. Her father was a producer in Soviet cinema. She actually could have had a pretty easy go of it. One of the formative experiences as she was in this kind of artist club, that was formed to allow some tolerated dissent in Kiev, but they, they didn't want them to get too serious, I'm sure. She was actually in, they started discovering eyewitness accounts of where Soviet atrocities had taken place to, to punish the enemies of the state. Obviously, when the Soviet regime took over, it's just I, I've seen all sorts of estimates that the sum total of atrocities from communism from you know the start of the Bolshevik revolution through I think it was a certain period in the 90s I think someone had done uh, tried to quantify how many people did we lose to this how many people were killed it was north of 50 million it was an extremely high number at any rate she and her friends went to Bikivnia which is near Kiev and there had been some 50,000 to 100,000 declared enemies of the state shot between 37 and 41. There's some contested numbers there, but it's tens of thousands of enemies of the state were just slaughtered there. And they found a skull that had been shot twice. They're at this mass grave. They find the skull. This is what Allah said. She cried. She said, imagine, pointing towards the burials, we are there. We could all be there. She went on to fight for Ukraine's cultural independence. It's historical independence. She created a window, a stained glass window that was called Shepchenko Mother in the lobby of Kiev University's main building. It depicted Taras Shepchenko, who was Ukraine's major poet. He was hugging a woman who was seen as a symbol of Mother Ukraine. And the quote that from Shepchenko that was placed in that stained glass was, I will glorify those voiceless slaves. I will put a word on guard around them. And it was destroyed. You can still see images of it, but it was destroyed by the Soviet authorities. That experience of finding the mass grave, of finding the skull, and why I find this so compelling. She's an artist already, working within the system at a tolerated level of dissent. She's with friends. They start coming across these encounters. The eyewitness testimonies start leading them. The testimonies start leading them to this place. And... They, they go. So they'd rather go. They go to this area. And there were 50,000 to, 50, to 100,000. You're confronted with the scope of it. She finds that one skull 
shot twice. So now she's seeing the individual. And then she says, imagine. And we've talked about that word and how so much of the problem with recognizing the signs of genocide is not having that empathic imagination that, to TKD's point earlier, can hold in balance at the same time the great good of which we are capable and also the unspeakable evil human beings are capable of. Allah, as an artist, holds that skull, sees that skull, sees the two bullets through it, is able to point back to the whole field, the scope of the atrocities, the thousands of numbers that so many of us, after being bludgeoned with data and with mass atrocities and mass disasters worldwide, we think, I can't handle this. I don't know how many more mass shootings, how many more genocides, how many more landslides, how many more ecological disasters. I don't know. I can't handle these numbers. I can't process. Allah transcended that in that moment. She looked and said, we are there. We could all be there. We are there. Her group with her now, her friends, her close loved ones. And beyond that, we could all be there. And I submit that her courage in that moment, that transformative experience, which really captures so many things that we were talking about tonight, and her courage to go forward, even as a wife and a mother who could have just said, oh, I, I don't want to put all this at risk, and to still carry on and to be willing to make the sacrifices and to be willing to put her life on the line just by the simple virtue of remaining truthful to who she was. And she did. She paid for it with her life. That's the kind of courage this moment needs. That's the kind of courage this moment in human history needs. That's the kind of courage we didn't see on display at that hearing of four college presidents that for all their education and all their experience could still not see what was in front of them and recognize it for what it was, which is an incitement to genocide, to stop the process, to have the moral courage and clarity. That's what we're being asked to do now. And that's what we are doing every single week in this session. I thank each and every one of you for giving us the opportunity to discuss this because I learned so much and it inspires my work. And so grateful to all of you and to Maria Report, to Prince, to Nancy, to every single person in the space who even just gives five minutes of time to listen to this. I just want us to go forth and take this, keep this momentum because we are in this for the long haul. The one thing Archbishop Gudziak said at the Holodomor commemoration, and I posted a video of this. It's not the greatest sound. I did some subtitles because I was sitting a little further back than I'd initially wanted to, but uh, it was crowded. At any rate, one of the last things he said was that genocide can make us, to paraphrase him, genocide can make us bitter. It can make us full of hatred. We overcome that through love, through courage, because we're in this. These are the last words of the English portion of his remarks. We're in this for the long haul. Slava Ukraini. Um, we are over time. I know that debater has a stand up, but I also know that that is a beautiful, righteous anger that, that, that is, is right there that, has, that you just said so beautifully. They are amazing words to wrap up tonight, to wrap up a lot, wrap so much. But like I said, debater, did you want to add something or are we good to end the night? It was something to do with Spain. British people like to go to Spain for holidays and see it as a bright, fun place and go to Ibiza and dance and things like that. 
there are college students in Spain doing a course in modern archaeology. Girls, young people, 19 years old, on this archaeology course, digging up past graves and then taking the bones, just spoke about skull that have been shot twice, taking those bones and with modern technology, we can do the DNA testing to try and find out who those bones belong to and people are finally able to put their grandmother and grandmothers and great grandmothers and uncles and aunts to rest all these years later and uh, soon it'll be 90 years the only thing I, I wanted to add was that I, I really don't think that this should be happening in 90 years time in in Ukraine Gina said earlier if, if we intervene now we could ensure that this kind of thing young people aren't doing a college course in Ukraine in, 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 in urban archaeology and doing the same thing as the thing I've just described in Spain in 90 years time. That's all I had to add. Thank you very much for an absolutely incredible session. Everyone. Thank you. Thank you, debater. There, there's so much that we talked about tonight. That's absolutely amazing. Marcus, go ahead. Hi. I just got home and heard Gina's epic speech, and I just wanted to say I wish the people we voted for had half her moral clarity and intelligence. So laudable. Thank you, Gina. You set an incredible example. I am so thankful for the way this night turned out, and I will, I will leave some notes on the paper. I will just I will just say that as it was at the beginning of this session and has been for a while, I have a new renewed hope to have the ban of honor of being banned by Russia by something that I do to advocate for Ukraine someday. I would love to be, I would love to be banned by Russia. If you can't think of um, a list of reasons after listening to us just talk. It's what we did tonight. We just talked for the last three hours. It has been some of the most amazing stuff I think that we have talked about. I also think in a lot of ways, some of the most educational stuff that we have talked about. I appreciate Nancy and Vina so much. It's, it's, there are no words to Katie Bach and debater and everybody else who has contributed to this conversation tonight. It's been absolutely amazing. Nancy, did you want to say anything as we wrap up? Yes, I do. Again, I echo those exact sentiments. And I've told Prince in the background before, and of course it didn't even need to be said today, that I will take a, a dialogue like we've had today with so many people participating and contributing such thoughtful and well-reasoned and caring expressions of belief in this mission and belief in prevention of genocide. I will take this part of understanding genocide over any report that we can ever put in front of you guys and talk through. Because a session like this truly means that we are all getting that deeper understanding and deeper knowledge and deeper compassion plus the skills to act effectively on that compassion to bring others to that view. That 
is really the whole goal of what we originally started these sessions for. I am very happy that while we got through zero sentences on the report that we were going to discuss today, we had three hours of just tremendous information and learning from each other. And I'll add the technical geek out piece because while the conversation was flowing in the background, I was attempting, didn't succeed on all fronts, but I was attempting to capture a lot of the resources and references and things that we talked about in that mega thread that is in the nest. Since I started that thread at the beginning of the night with the report and with the summary there, I've also added a link to an excellent thread from Holocaust Education on the 10 stages of genocide, since we had talked about that. I will also note that today for some people, tomorrow for some of us who are a little bit later, is the United Nations International Day of Commemoration and Dignity of the Victims of the Crime of Genocide and of the prevention of this crime. I know that's a long-winded message, but that is absolutely what we focused on tonight, was their commemoration of the dignity of the victims of those crimes. And that, I think, was the most common expression through all of it. Beyond that, I also added Gina's thread about the two Ukrainian priests who were captured by Russia over a year ago and were being tortured. I also added a link to Genocide Watch's 10 Stages of Genocide. And we talked about the United States Eli Wiesel Genocide and Atrocities Prevention Act that had been passed in 2018 and became law in January 2019. I provided the congress.gov resources for that. Also, that law requires an annual report to Congress by the Department of State. And I provided the link to the strategy and the reports from 2019 through 2023. The most recent one provided to Congress was August of 2023. And in it, Part of what they do discuss is what the United States is doing to support Ukraine. And a lot of that goes towards supporting the war crimes accountability actions and the legal support and that documentation. Well, I did not know about that before this session. Those resources are there. And we think we should, I think we should all understand what is being done and push. This will also give us more information to push our representatives more effectively. We discussed a UN data on displaced Ukrainians. I provided a general link there. We talked about people's understanding of the Holocaust across different age groups, and I provided some reference material there. Again, I provided a reference to the book, A Problem from Hell, America and the Age of Genocide by Samantha Power, and provided a link to Ukrainian Art History's Twitter account, because that is an excellent follow. Uh, TDK Bach had provided some excellent information, including Francis, oh, 
TKD, you're going to fuss at me here. I'm going to butcher it. Francis Poulon. I'm not good at French names. Dialogues of the Carmelites. And I provided a link um, with information about it that also included the music from the opera itself. She also mentioned Dietrich Bonhoeff and some of his quotes, and I provided a citation about him. A great site on Ala Horska's art and other artists from the Soviet art era of the 1960s is there. Then also, debater, you had asked about Ukrainian films and what was available. I found a link to the films that were selected in June of 2021 by the National Alexander Doshenko Film Center in Kiev through a poll taken of representatives of national and international film community members of their top 100 Ukrainian cinema films in their history. And you will be happy to know that those films go back to the 1920s and continue on through the modern era. So that link is at the, I think that's the very last one in the threads. That's the geeky technical stuff that will help you reference back to many of the topics that we talked about today and hopefully enrich your follow-ups with uh, additional reference materials. Thank you, everybody, for your participation and for that wonderful variety of cultural topics and mechanisms by which we build empathy. And to Gina's point, also how those can be perverted and used against us and how we have to be mindful of that as well. So I think that was excellent dialogue and I really appreciate everyone's contribution on it today. And uh, Prince, I'll go back to you or should I shoot over to Will? Will, is it about this subject or are you just complaining that you oh, haven't gotten so, your time to so, start talking? No, yet? no, no, it's about genocide. So yeah. uh, I listened and just wanted to make a statement before Gina goes to see how much she agrees or whether or not she wants to correct it. I continually look at what's going on in this war and the progress and the effects that will be, the effects that will outcome and how we deal with the lack of aid, timely support. I'm reminded from listening to this session that there's still an urgency that I feel guilty we forgot about. There is an urgency every day not just because of the military stuff that I look at a lot, but certainly uh, because of the genocide that is continuing to go on. And we will find out what happened in Mariupol at some point in time. But okay, if, if you've been calling, if you want another reason to call your senators, your representatives in any country, my country, America, the UK, anywhere, remember there's an urgency here to stop essentially the atrocity a day machine that is Russia and note to them particularly that failure to deliver support isn't going to mean Russia, sorry, uh, Ukraine's going to be forced to the bargaining table. You're not going to force them to stop fighting because they know what they're fighting for. The fact is that when the pressure comes off the Russian forces due to the lack of military support, it doesn't mean uh, that they stop. In fact, their acts of genocide tend to get worse. I'm not a religious person, but the statement, the devil will make work for idle hands to do, is played out in fact when Russian soldiers and occupying forces have time on their hands. That's why I think there is an additional urgency to this matter. Gina, I 
when we've been talking about this for years now. I fail to understand how the uh, basis of establishing genocide isn't the only reason, the single only reason why everybody hasn't poured in support from the very beginning. Uh, I always, <laughs> you had me at that, always. But we continue to try to find reasons and arguments and economic reasons. There's all those things. But at the end of the day, it just still boils down to the Ukrainians are not going to abandon their countrymen to what will face them if support is uh, withdrawn. It takes a lot longer to free those people from their occupation. No other country would either. I think that's only fair to recognize that we all would do the same things for our countrymen. Why would we expect any different of Ukraine? Yes. Go ahead, Gina. The urgency, certainly this was no theoretical discussion tonight. It, it got probably deeper and, and less specific to the current statistics. I think that what we take away from this is that having explored all that, it's all the more reason. And quite candidly, let me tell you, I was on the phone today with my elected officials as it been all week because I need to make sure. The other reason that I cited what that disastrous hearing of the four presidents in D.C. this week is the fact that word genocide wasn't brought up and the fact that Representative Elise Stefanik could bring it up. We need to get the word genocide out there in the conversations about Ukraine, and I've said this before, because, and, and you don't have to say, I think, I feel, just go point to the reports we've already discussed. The New Lines Institute, Raoul Wallenberg, Center for Human Rights reports, May of 2022, July of 2023, they've come out, they've collated the evidence, and they have flat out said, this is a breach of the Genocide Convention. This triggers the duty to punish and prevent and I am very forthright in keeping those documents before people's eyes. I have often retweeted the text of the Genocide Convention. I am going to cite that Genocide Convention because until someone tells me it's null and void, it's in force. We've ratified it. And I want a good explanation as to why people aren't getting behind it. We've, I think what we have to do, and I've heard people, and, it's, and I'm not a political scientist, I come with a lot of disclaimers, as you can tell, Prince, right? Because I'm always sending them. We've often heard in these conversations about Ukraine um, and, and one academic who is rightfully disdained by Nick Ford, Ivana Stroner, is Mearsheimer because he is all about real politic, right? What's the art of the possible here? First of all, that's not going to work in a genocide situation because it's an absolute offense to human dignity. I have no problem repeating that word for the hundredth time tonight. The thing is, when we talk about support for Ukraine, yes, for some people, it, it may be the first thing to get them to hear is that, OK, this is an investment in, in geopolitical security and global security. And, th and that's great. I don't have a problem introducing that. But my first problem is that this is a violation of the Genocide Convention. I'm not going to make that my first argument as to why we should support. And I do have friends who unfortunately have fallen for Russian propaganda, who uh, have just not done the homework or have beliefs or biases that have prevented them from seeing this what it is. I just come back and say, can you tell me why we are not living up to our obligations here? The word genocide, in terms of an action point, getting on the phone with your elected officials and not saying, I think it would be a good idea, or this is in our national interest, fine, let's get genocide front and center, because otherwise we're evading, the, we're evading what's really happening here. This is genocide. And of course, the last 
party on this planet who wants us to bring up that word is Russia, of course, because it's in Russia's interest for the rest of the world to look away, not care, or minimize it and say, maybe Putin was right with that bit about the historical unity of the Slavs and that nonsense trope that he tried to peddle as history. And then the conspiracy theories, and it's spin the wheel with what's Putin's excuse today for trying to genocide Ukraine, Satanism, neo-Nazis. It's just absurd. Let's bring it back to what this is. Stop with your spin the wheel excuses. This is genocide. You're in violation of the convention and we need the political will and, and the moral courage and clarity to stand up and say, no, you're done. This is over. This has to. And I think that if we start using that plain language with our elected officials, again, that hearing down in Washington, I cannot tell you how the more I thought about it, how that much more deeply disturbed I was. Because if you watch, and I do, even if you only watch a few minutes of it, watch as these presidents, educated, accomplished, professional, academic slash CEOs of major institutions, still hid behind legalese, backpedaling, stock phrases, whataboutism, if, context, let's think about this. No, it was just an absolute failure to confront what was right in front of them. We need to back away from that language and get clear and have the courage to get clear. I hope that kind of reassures you that will, or I don't know if that responds to where you were going with no, that. I just, but... No, I just wanted to make, I just realized to myself that wasn't what I dropped it from my primary approach to my legislators. And I, and I felt a bit guilty about that because listening to the session again, it literally ought to be the first thing off my lips every time. But the other thing, Will, I don't know if you heard this, but it's in the it's in the mega thread too, is that 2018 act, the Illuvisel Genocide Prevention, Atrocity and Genocide Prevention Act that we in the United States have. Because and what I'm starting to do, and I don't think and I think sometimes we're fearful of this because we're afraid that if we start citing these acts, and oh, I'm not a legal scholar. I don't know. I don't have time to read 60 pages of nine point font. I get it. If you know enough and you say, okay, this law is on the books, you have every right to say, okay, this law is on the books. Are you can you tell me why this law doesn't apply? You don't have to know all the answers to raise the issue. We have these treaties. We have the, we have the Genocide Convention. We have these agencies. We have this law on our own U.S. code. Tell me why this isn't applicable. If you can't, then I'm going to ask why you're not adhering to it. As a journalist, I ask a lot of dumb questions. That's pretty much what I get paid to do is ask a lot of dumb questions because I don't know the answer, but I'm going to find who does. And I just am like a two-year-old with a lot of digital devices who runs around pestering people like, why this, why this, why this, why this? I mean, you know, it's a great way to get information and learn. It's a great way to, I've had people say, why are you asking me that? I'd rather you not ask me that. Because I want you to question yourself. Exactly. 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 We all, we talked about artists tonight, and I'll wrap up this train of thought with this. We talked about artists and we talked about the prophetic role. I don't care if you don't have one quote unquote artistic bone in your body that you can't play piano or draw. Yes, you do. Okay. Creativity is the arts expressive, but creativity takes many forms and not all of them are defined by a particular genre of art. Find the ways that you can in your own life, in your own circle of influence, in in contacting your elected officials, use that creativity to say, why this? Be that prophetic artistic voice by simply questioning and holding your elected officials to account when atrocities are taking place, have been taking place, and we have 
the tools to do it and we're not to, to stop it and we're not using them. There's your artistic vision right there. Plus there's the poisoning and the uh, use of language. Probably one of the reasons I had avoided using it regularly recently is due to the fact that it's, it's like the word Nazi, right? The first person to use the word genocide or Nazi is seen to be slipping into the rhetorical in relation to their argument when, in fact, the discussion should start the legislation. Do you realize that the United States, my guys, do you realize that Australia signed the convention on with respect to definition of genocide, do you know what the genocide, the definition is? Cause I'll tell you, because too many people in relation to Gaza are bandying around the term genocide and poisoning the language again. Who's involved with doing that? They want to poison the language and take met words, not mean anything because they do mean something. If it's 655, if it's day 655, I pretty much guarantee you that actual genocide has been going on inside Ukraine for at least 620 of those days. There is no, look at the, the definition and all the things, the division to popular culture, the running down of people's language, culture, language, language. Oh, none of that's happening in Hamas. Nothing, none of that is happening to Hamas, but it is happening and has been happening continually in Ukraine. It really pisses me off that, that I've shied away from the use of that language in the discussion on what the definition is and how it applies uh, because of uh, the overuse and misuse of it. And I don't want to be lumped in with them. And I don't have to find a way to reclaim it, frankly. I want to jump in on that, Will, because I understand what you're saying. And unfortunately, I have to go in a little bit. I'm actually on call this weekend. So my mission this weekend is to monitor all the news. So. <laughs> My little outlet, we're, we're monitoring all the news. I do want to respond because that's an excellent point. And it is a reason that people are afraid to use it. You know, I think we have to take a lot of courage here and look at the resources that Maria report, these sessions have highlighted, and that many other people have been highlighting. You don't have to go into this usage alone. I don't. I don't go tell people, by the way, this is a genocide and provide no evidence. As I said, we've got two major reports from New Lines Institute and Raoul Wallenberg Center for Human Rights. Those and, two and the Yale report. Yale report. Ex exactly. Point to your experts. Point to your experts, to your good vetted sources, and stay narrow for all that which is sound like a little bit contradictory to what I'd said earlier where we were looking at some broad stuff. But in terms of Ukraine, we need to stay narrow because one of Russia's tactics, and we've all seen this, you don't need to be a student of their propaganda to see this in action, is that they are owned oh, in just lose Gina. I think I'm back now. Yeah, I I there, there you're back. Can you hear me? I had there to you're, back. you're back. You're back. Yeah. So I don't know where I cut off. The long and the short of it is what I was saying is don't be afraid with Ukraine to first use your resources, the good vetted resources, as I said, then stay narrow. If the conversation is about Ukraine, one of the biggest tactics of Russia is the whataboutism, the confusion. I just went back and forth. I got trolled by someone. If any of you were following it, I think a few people in the space, I know Prince, you had seen some of these trolls, this, this particular troll, was every time you tried to remain focused on a particular point and ask for evidence, it was like the scoot in the other direction. But what about, if I'm going to point you over here, I'm going to direct you over here. It got very squirmy. And you need to stay narrow and focused. If anyone says, yeah, but whatever. Okay, that's that situation without going too far into the weeds, I, they're not unrelated, okay, because we know that Hamas has met with Moscow. That's beyond the scope of this discussion. What we can say is, I'm speaking about Ukraine, 
I'm speaking about a genocide that has that started in 2014. We do, even in this discussion, and we've talked about doing a night where we look at 2014 through the Maidan and, and into 2021, up until the full-scale invasion in February 22 of 2022. More than 14,000 people lost their lives. The Genocide Convention does not have a quota, like you must have killed or X number of people must have died before this kicks in. Uh, you don't have to kill a single person to actually violate the Genocide Convention. All you have to do is violate that incitement clause or create the conditions of life. When the Nagorno-Karabakh, in, 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 in the Armenian enclave, historic Armenian enclave, they would call it Artsakh, but, and I apologize to anyone here if I'm not getting these pronunciations correct, but I had done some coverage with one of the bishops here in the United States, the Armenian Catholic bishop, who was really trying to bring attention to it. We did a couple of articles. I have another follow-up coming through, but the long and the short of it was the one, the, the first prosecutor of the International Criminal Court testified at a hearing in Washington, and he was saying, the Genocide Convention can be violated simply by starving people. At the time, these people were being starved by, by a blockade that Azerbaijan, with Russia's at least tacit blessing, was all about. That's a violation. That's a violation of the conventions. Again, stay narrow, stay focused, point to your experts to keep the discussion focused on Ukraine, avoid the whataboutism and the constant distraction, and also the cynicism. I, again, hold people to account, but don't feel that you have to know all the answers. If you know you're pointing to good vetted sources, get this discussion refocused on where it should be, genocide. I, I think you just raised an excellent point because, as you said, people want to overuse the word and then get cynical. The last thing we want to be is cynical because cynical is what Russia is. We all see what that does for human life, right? Cynical is throwing people into an absolute, as cannon fodder, into a battle and, and then telling the women in your country, go have eight kids so we can have more to keep feeding into this imperialistic genocidal war machine. Putin is telling Russian families to have eight kids now so that he can stay in power with troops to be thrown into harm's way to, to keep him in his bunker. This is, it defies words at points, but at any rate, again, I think that we can take courage and, and that we have the tools that we need. We just need to start using them to stop this genocide. Yes, absolutely. I am. I want to continue this conversation so bad, but Gina has to get to bed. Gina has to get to bed. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, James. I'm sorry, Marcus. I'm going to pull Get the out plug. of here. You're banned. We can try to continue this conversation without Gina, but I am sending Gina to bed. But I do want to say, if you do not, Look for every single one of the articles Gina writes, especially about Ukraine. I feel sorry for you. I actually, because Gina and I have become friends, I read every single article she writes because I want to be able to support her as a friend. What is important here from the point that Gina was making, Will, is it's not very long. It's a couple of sentences in every single article related to Ukraine that Gina writes, there is there are a few sentences that points out that the new lines Raul Lomberger reports that started coming out have pointed to the genocide having started in February of 2022. She uses those words, she cites those two sources and leaves it at that for that. It, I think you pretty much don't you pretty much leave it at that. You don't go into a whole lot. 
people need to take responsibility too, but you've given them the resources to be able to find the information. You've given them the ability to find that information very easily. It doesn't take a whole lot to be able to do that. It's something that I really appreciate about Gina. Every single article she writes about Ukraine, the word genocide is in there. How many missing kids there are, I think, is in there. She mentions those reports. But I am going to say, I am going to give you a minute to say what you always say about we came together for an awful reason. Here we are. And and it's pretty freaking amazing. Say your bit, and then I'm going to kick you out of the space. Seriously. I, it's I like getting kicked out it. of a bar. Is this like last call? Yeah, but you missed the meat, though. <laughs> you missed the meat, Joe. And thank you for that. No, I'm firm on that because I, I tell you, and, and I've seen this in articles, when you have ongoing situations, we don't want to ever normalize this. Then the problem is in a world where we're barraged with this coverage of events, when news goes downstream really quickly with ongoing situations, it's very tempting for people to, to for journalists to use a shorthand, especially if their space is limited. If I can't put in all of my statistics, I have a couple of about a paragraph of in my when my editors let me put it all in. It's the full range of statistics. It's all the missing, all the damage, everything. But at the very least, if I only have the space where I can say this started in 2014. It's a genocide. Check at New Lines and Raul Wallenberg. At least I've got it out there. Thank you, because that's just something I feel very strongly about. Candidly, we were doing a, a, an article in-house this week, and, and it related to Ukraine in part. And my editor said, why don't we put this point about Ukraine in here? I said, that's great. That's important. That's not the main point right now. The main point is that this is a genocide. I wanted to, I just wanted to make that clear. I'm not, I'm very firm on this now. So thank you all. I am going to be obedient to the order. If I have been uh, kicked out of a bar, then kicked out of our digital bar here. In all seriousness, it is true. I, I always keep in mind that we have come together for a tragic reason. It's a reason that I pray in my small way, I can stop this tragic reason and support Ukraine in this small way by just raising awareness and having these good conversations and, and doing the research and learning every week. I thank each and every one of you. I thank Maria Report, Prince, Nancy for putting this session together, for letting me be a part of it, for everyone who participates, because it's nothing unless people actually listen and participate. That's critical to this. I, with all my heart, thank the people of Ukraine who personally, and I have told this to Ukrainian soldiers, I have told this to many Ukrainians, you have made me a better person. You have made me appreciate my freedoms, the, the gifts that I've been blessed with as an American. I am extremely grateful. I don't take those things for granted the way I used to because of your courageous examples. To the people and the nation of Ukraine, I salute you. I will do everything I can to support you in this fight against a horrific evil for you in, as you live out your destiny as a wonderful and inspiring nation that I just think brings so much to the world. Thank you. Slava Ukraini. And yes, I do hate to do it, but yeah, you got to go. Go to bed. Sleep. I hate to do it. I hate to do it because this has been such an awesome conversation. It is time. It is time. I apologize, everybody. We'll be back next week. Oh, boy. Should have done that a while ago. Sorry. I just pulled out my Canadian there with a good sorry. I mean it.
James Gillahan. Hello. I didn't sleep through the whole thing this time. Thank you for everybody that said everything. I don't think Joe Biden can get out of this without explaining that there was a genocide on October 7th. I think right now he's hanging in the wind looking like Mr. Evil of the world, and it's so far from the truth.